say, you're a good lawyer. You're bright, you're ambitious, talented. You could be somebody around here. You sure you want to be known as the man that defended that murderer? Could be very unpopular. Why toss away a promising career? I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially It's a degree Glenn? Chris? Glenn, listen to me. Your marriage is on the rocks, you're about to have an affair. Your career's in ruins if you're lucky, and if you're not, you're dead. Okay. Don't get me wrong, my friend. What you put into this, you even inspired me, and I'm uninspirable. Do everyone a favor, though. Drop the podcast. Okay, I don't recognize where that's from in the movie, but I'll take your word for it. If it's not close enough to the actual uh, speech by Oliver Platt, I will record it again. Okay. No, I, I get it. Okay, now I recognize it's, it. It's right before the emotional high point of this movie where we, we find out that um, Matthew McConaughey's dog has survived the firebombing of his house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Max? We'll see, we'll see Max, if there's... Right? Is Max. There, there are several emotional high points in this movie, putatively, but we'll, we'll get to that. Right. I'm going to guess you did not see this film in 1996, when it was new. Nope. Didn't see any of the Grishams, didn't read any of the Grishams. This is my first Grisham. The film called A Time to Kill, by the way. I think it was the fourth John Grisham adaptation in four years. The second uh, Joel Schumacher joint. The second, yes. So so Joel Schumacher in the 90s was doing this hopscotch where he would do a Grisham and then a Batman and then another Grisham and another mm-hmm. Batman. Mm-hmm. And as much as I, I don't really like his Batman movies, I feel like those movies used his strengths and his, his experience probably his more visual extensively. He, 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 yes, he, he does value visuals over let's say story and uh yeah this this looked great uh, started as a costume designer right uh window dresser was actually originally a window dresser ah, okay to... i stand corrected this is a legal thriller it is so we thought we needed some legal counsel to advise us well you better be going somewhere with this counselor will you allow it i'll allow it good so that is that is why we we needed to bring back our great pal from the colombo episode mm-hmm a former TV recapper for Television Without Pity, mm-hmm. the founder of NPR's Monkey See blog, one of mm-hmm. the founders of NPR's long-running and beloved pop culture happy hour podcast with some other people. And herself a, a lapsed attorney. Is that how you would say it? Uh, like It's like lapsed Catholic? How would you... You're uh, stepping on my thing, man. Okay. Yes. Okay. Right. She is a, a lawyer, a JD, a novelist, the author of 2019's Terrific, Evie Drake starts over, and the brand new Flying Solo. Yeah, she is. And as you said, someone who knows her way around the law, she's Linda Holmes. Hi, Chris. 
Welcome back to A Degree Absolute, Linda, a two-timer. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi, Glenn. Hey, friend. Hi, everybody. So, yeah, lapsed lawyer, um, uh, ex-lawyer. What do, you, yeah. what do you think of yourself? What do you, how do you qualify um, yourself? I mean, I'm definitely a law school graduate. I'm a former yep. practicing attorney, but it, I let my license lapse many years ago. Um, mm. I officially resigned from the bar of the state of Minnesota, which you have to do by petitioning the Supreme Court to let you leave, which is wow. an interesting thing to do. Uh, they let me leave. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a, I'm officially not licensed anywhere. So now I'm just kind of a JD. Do you have to give them a reason why you're asking no, to? No, you just basically tell them that you're not that you're not practicing anymore. And I think you have to certify that you're not practicing anymore. Hmm. Um, hmm. and that you're not going to be practicing anymore. But by the time I did that, I had not lived in Minnesota for a number of years. I had not been practicing for a number of years. For the first few years that I was writing and editing full time, I did keep my license. But you're no longer practicing because because you perfected it. Can I call you Esquire, or is that only a thing that lawyers can be called? That's a good question. I think at one time Esquire. I don't know. I don't know whether I'm still allowed to do that. I just mm-hmm. you know I just go with JD or, as Chris said, uh, well as you both said, uh, lapsed really. You know? <laughs> Would it be inappropriate to to address you for the purposes of this discussion as counselor? You certainly can in this discussion as long okay. as I think I tell everybody I'm not licensed and nothing I say is legal advice. Okay. And what's your Grisham experience? I actually am a, am a pretty uh, serious Grisham person. Um, mm-hmm. I was a huge fan of both the book and the movie of The Farm, which I think is where a lot of people discovered Grisham. And mm. of course, John Grisham, A Time to Kill, which we're talking about t- today, is the <laughs> debut novel. But oh. the, the firm was the bombshell novel the the firm was the novel that blew up and that everybody had on airplanes and all that stuff so i think i read the firm first and then i read a time to kill but i read all of the grishams for a long time um at some point i did stop as i have with most writers who you know revisit similar themes a lot of times it's not a judgment on the the quality of the books it's just you know i just tend to move on to other things eventually but mm-hmm. i really like these books and and some of the movies i like a great great deal mm-hmm. my favorite one just as a movie is the pelican brief um mm-hmm. which is a, a movie i really really like but yeah, I'm a I'm a pretty big Grisham fan. I went through a phase also a few years ago where I was listening to a bunch of his more recent audiobooks. He's got a really good narrator who does um, a, a lot of his more contemporary uh, audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Is he repeating himself nowadays? You know, I think, and maybe we'll get into this a little more, but I think, you know, there are two primary Grisham kind of structures and they both really come down to variations on little guy um, against you know big guy and in some of them the little guy is not very admirable right and some of them the little guy is is morally questionable or morally vague but um, you know one is the kind and I think he's written more of these that have been turned into movies the the one kind is kind of the pelican brief kind that has more chases and you know potentially guns and people hiding behind you know pillars and garages and all that kind of stuff um and those are kind of the the thrillers Mm -hmm. um and then you have more the ones like a time to kill is where the the big thing that you're fighting is really more a systemic problem um Mm -hmm. in in a time to kill a lot of it is entrenched racism in in the state of mississippi and elsewhere 
but in a lot of his books it's poverty it's the way that that very poor um people are treated within the system he's written quite a bit about death penalty cases Mm -hmm. um and those books are those books feel a little different a time to kill feels to me like it's from a slightly different strain of his writing than the firm and um the pelican brief just to name two I came into this knowing, you know, having absorbed something about Grisham just through cultural osmosis, that it was like the firm is like, everybody is in on it. Uh, everybody at the firm is in on it that you are fighting against. So I kept imagining this to be a conspiracy, a conventional conspiracy thriller. And that's what I'm saying is that some of yeah. them are that. This one mm-hmm. is not so much that. I kept waiting for somebody to pull back a hood <laughs> for it to be Oliver Platt, like he right. was always in on it all the time. And right. that was not the case. That's more the Grisham, the other model. You you sort of thought that that it would turn out that Judge Noose would be in on it. <laughs> Aptly named. Judge I'm gonna Noose. say any anyone who has ever come after Jim Cameron for unobtainium, which is a real thing, and has okay. nothing to say about Judge Noose. Wow, we got to Cameron. You, you need to pick like, a side. We are five minutes in, and we got to Cameron already. Good, good, good to know. Okay, so I I definitely read The Firm in high school. I cannot remember if I read A Time to Kill, but either whichever of these books I read, it was in its like 90th printing, right? Because like you said, Linda, these right. these books were huge. And and one of the one of the paperback editions that I had, and I cannot remember if it was A Time to Kill or The Firm, but he, he there was a preface by Don, John Grisham where he talked about how he had written A Time to Kill and didn't ever expect it to be published and put it in a drawer and some friend has like or you know, it just like saw the manuscript on his desk and was like, What's that? It's my novel and it, and how he, you know, was was loath to sell the movie rights to this one because it was so personal to him and uh yeah. I don't know. That sounds like that was probably a reprint of of A Time to Kill, right? That he would explain how this Yeah, I would say so, uh-huh. yes. Because as I, as I said, I, I am quite quite sure that A Time to Kill was actually the first one that was published but I don't think it made the kind of splash that the that the firm did and it, it mm-hmm. was I think it's one of those things where you wind up kind of um, you know obviously they go back and kind of re-establish the brand of the of the novelist and if you it's funny because once you get movie tie-ins, this disintegrates a little bit. But the interesting thing is there is a a cover style of Grisham novels that if mm-hmm. you read Grisham novels, you know very well. And it goes back a very, very, very long time. And as they re, you know republish them, they continue to reinforce that style. You see it on the audiobooks. Huh. You see it on the print books. So, you know, he is... I think a solid genre writer. He does mm-hmm. repeat himself. That is absolutely true. But I think he is a solid genre writer. And I think he is a well-intentioned dude when it comes to trying to write about bigger issues in the legal system. A Time to Kill is a flawed book, just as it is a flawed movie. You know, it comes through his particular mm-hmm. lens, you know, his way of writing about um justice we can talk about a couple of the big changes that are made in the structure of the thing but i you know as somebody to read a book by him or listen to a book by him like in the car on a long drive you betcha (laughs) there is something that happens when a author is as influential as he is that you mentioned the cover style like you can recognize a grisham-esque cover approach like when the publisher wants to tip you off that if you like Grisham, you're going to like this. Right. You can see a similarity in font. You can see a similarity right. in placement. You can see a similarity in David colors. Baldacci. His exactly. books look like Grisham books. I was going to say, but I but there is certainly a tradition of legal thrillers before him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he definitely gave them a big boost 
But if you track down, there was a, a really good piece that, that Maris Kreisman wrote recently about the influence of Gone Girl over mm-hmm. um, the time since it's been published. I think that Gone Girl is more an individual book, but Grisham, I think, as a writer, obviously has had a, a profound influence. He not only is somebody who has been... I think for a genre novelist, reasonably well regarded, particularly Mm -hmm. as relates to some of his books, but also just phenomenally commercially successful. You know, Mm -hmm. just a a guy who just is a money machine. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is sort of I, I mean, I think there are fewer books in his later oeuvre. As we would say, you, you, and you and the French would, yeah, would say exactly yeah. that are similar to a to a time to kill. I think he's pursued more of those kind of trench coat thrillers um, as as time has gone on. It is interesting that he is regarded as as I think he, his reputation holds up today as a genre writer in a way that somebody like Dan Brown he has a reputation for terrible prose style, <laughs> uh, and and there are plenty of genre writers who are very successful like Michael Crichton can't put a sentence together to save his life. Mm-hmm. Um, how is this guy as a writer on a line by line basis? You know, it's been a while since I read a a full book of his to tell uh-huh. you the truth it's been a couple years as i said it, it would have been since the the last time i was in that kind of audiobook phase sure but I, I would say he's certainly not the kind of writer that dan brown is where the only time i've ever read a dan brown book i just was interrupted constantly by the the howleriness yeah. um of it what do you mean he ejaculated right. that kind of and thing. i and i and i think Grisham, well, i think the know, fact that you yourself are are also a student of symbology probably means that that you objected to his laissez-faire treatment of the scholarly study of the other thing is i think grisham is a little better at writing at writing characters who are a little bit less uh heroic they are sort of people who become overwhelmed with a sense of obligation but they're not necessarily particularly wonderful people Mm -hmm. um and the interesting thing is you know in the book a time to kill uh, I will just tell you that that big closing argument that forms kind of the biggest hero moment for the Matthew McConaughey character in the book doesn't belong to him. So mm. I think the books have been better than the films at mm. um, retaining a little bit more of that ambiguity, that these are people who decide to do the right thing in the end, and there is a terrible and tremendous cost um, that's another thing that a lot of times the books contain better than the films do. There's a tremendous cost. They do it anyway. And it's less about the fact that they are individually heroic and more about the fact that they are up against terrible odds and decide to do the right thing anyway. Yeah, you said the magic word ambiguity. I was surprised. We'll, we'll talk about this film, but I was surprised by the willingness of the film to at least engage with the notion of a moral gray area and to comment on the Atticus Finch idea of the White Knight coming in. Right. It, is mm-hmm. a, it, is, it is trying to engage with that in a way. I don't think it fully commits to it, and I think in the final moments of the film, it kind of really that's backs the, away from it. That's the thing. That's the, thing. This, the, the film loses its nerve a little bit uh, yeah. in the most interesting roads that it looks at one point like it might be you know, interested in walking. Yep. We'll get there, but we need to, to tell listeners why the hell we're talking about this movie. Why are we? Why are we talking about a twenty-six-year-old, very successful, the the eighth highest-grossing film of of nineteen ninety-six, 
a time when when a time to when a time to kill would come out in the summertime and uh, make make big money. This this was a well, much, and much different also era the, of movies. The star making Matthew McConaughey. Um, yeah, no. Oh, like oh he, I want to talk about done, this. He oh. had done other things, but this was the movie where people were like, "Okay, this guy is a gigantic, major, massive star." Yeah, I mean, third build. Right. And this movie. And, and what I remember from yeah. the time with the magazine covers and everything, because I, I had not yet seen Dazed and Confused, where, I mean, he, you know, he pops in that, but he's only in it for a few minutes. And I remember like Matthew McWho, like everybody's acting like this guy is a star already. And he's very good in these in this movie. Like you totally get why they're pushing him. But it's also um, just so beautiful. I mean, I'm sorry, but yeah. like this, if you like this kind of narrowly defined beauty, <laughs> he, he is at the height of his sort of very young, you know, before he was working on being mm-hmm. kind of uh, scruffy mm-hmm. and a pothead and all that, before that was kind of the image, he was just this extraordinarily pretty young dude by a very, very conventional definition. Yeah, and it's been a while since I've seen Dazed and Confused, but I don't think he is uh, sleeveless in that, and he is sleeveless in this quite a bit. And I think such, a probably... su- such a sweaty movie, he man. He wore the hell out movie. of that John Mellencamp Lonesome Jubilee Tour t-shirt. Great album. <laughs> Great album. Listen to it Crazy. today. And I, I want you both to know, before we, we continue with this, that because of this movie, I, I did not shower prior to this recording session. Sure. We're doing this over Zoom, but it's a sweaty movie, like you said. I, I feel like that is maybe one of the few aspects of this film in which we see the Schumacher coming through a little bit is that everyone has been sprayed with baby oil before every Uh, every take. Yes, it's a $40 million budget, probably about one-tenth of that to glycerin and spray bottles because good Lord. Yep. I assume this is set in the 90s when it came out, but uh, air air conditioning has not not reached Mississippi. Anyway, why are we talking about it? Well, the reason why is in 1966, Patrick McGoon thrived the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident, well, Many residents are referred to only by their numbers. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lavishly lampedly of its time. That short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. 27 years later, Glenn. Oh, Jesus. And, and I'm going to say they were hard years. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Amid a wave of uh, John Grisham adaptations, Patty McGee, uh-huh. mere weeks after he, he appeared so memorably in The Phantom... A film just dominated by by his presence was tapped to play Judge Omar Noose. Subtle. In, in a time to kill. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the subject Does he have the same hair return. here as he did in the Phantom? It looks like. Uh, I mean, how old is he in this? He's okay. So he was born in nineteen twenty eight. This is nineteen ninety six. Let's do some some quick math here. Did that be sixty eight? Mm, guess so. I I don't know. He uh, okay. So he's. Uh, like nine years younger than than Tom Cruise in Maverick, mm-hmm. the, the the yardstick by which I, I judge all of this. Uh, no, I I think he I don't know. Dang, he, that's rough. I know, I know, <sighs> it was rude. Uh, anyway, welcome everyone to the private, personal, by hand, tangent tolerant, but properly punctuated, punch card driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable, unforgettable television series, The Prisoner, and related documents. Unrelated documents. Now, Linda, you remember this, the shtick, right? I will say a thing that refers to <laughs> the uh, catchphrase of the prisoner. We, I will not be pushed, filed, index stamp, if debriefed, or numbered. And you and Chris will separately tell me how good that particular uh, bit was mm. on a scale of one to six. Remember you know, this? I, I got to tell you. coming back to you now? Yeah, I, I got to tell you guys something, <laughs> which is good. the last time I was on this show. Oh, yeah. You were at a point, Glenn. 
mm-hmm. where you were saying you felt that this had run its course. Yep. I still do. I still feel that way. And yet I return months yep. later and nothing has yeah. changed. You know, because ones are clamoring for it. What can I do? All right, I mean, that's I can't, they are. I can't, that's I'm fine. helpless. Go ahead. I'm listening. My only misgiving here is that last time Linda was on, it was your turn to to do it. And now she's back and it's your turn once again. That's unfortunate. Yep. I, I should have put my thumb on the scale there a little bit yeah. because I would like to submit myself for, for numerical scoring by, by Linda at some well, point on this. We're running but, out but, of Patty McGee movies, aren't we? We are. We sure are. Um, okay. And the ones that are left are, are really, really hard to track down. Okay. Linda, I just want to tell you, I did query the people about this, about whether they thought this uh, tired, elongated bit should persist or be retired. And statistically, by uh, a proportion of respondents, mm-hmm. this bit is more popular than COVID vaccines, more popular than President Biden, gotcha. uh, more popular than, than many, many things. Listen, it's a, it's a big winner. I, I live to serve. So if we're doing it, we're doing All right, it. Here we go. All right. Here we go. Strap in. We push it like we're part of a riding mob outside a courthouse in Canton, Mississippi. Uh, dark. That's dark. Mm-hmm. Am mm. I rating a, it? You're rating you are, it. On a scale of zero to six. Uh, I was going to say one to six, but I'm going to let zero. That'll be, that'll be a two. That's a little dark for me. Oh, oh you're off to uh, a weak start there, Gwen. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a three because it's... Um, uh, serviceable, but not imaginative. Three. I appreciate that. We file it like it's a motion for a change of venue. Huh? Nice. Huh? Five. Okay. Mm. All right. Five. Legit okay. legal strategy taken from the movie. So, yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've already considered your motion and denied it. <laughs> okay. I'll give you a four for that. Pithy and... Uh, appropriate that's that's my criteria and that's what i go with and I, for the longest time i was sitting here staring at my screen going there's nothing legal that you can do with file that's because i'm an idiot uh we index it we like go. court filings one would assume like in a law library or something probably indexed right yeah i'm gonna give you three because mm-hmm. because uh you know the indexing of um of the books in which uh, published cases exist is a whole business unto itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's just, so, it's a little low hanging fruit, that one. And since you yeah. chose not to pluck it, I can only give you a three, but, okay. uh, but, but mad respect, mad respect. I'm gonna give you a two for that. Mm. I mean, if okay. you had named any specific legal thing that could be indexed, I, I would have rated it much, much more highly. That would mean to make an effort. Uh, we stamp it like we are Stump Sisson's oldest brother. Of course, his other brothers being Stemp, Stimp, Stomp. I don't know what you're talking about, so I'll give okay. you a six. Okay. Yes, the uh, befuddlement index is an automatic six. But you did name specific things that I don't know. He's breaking rocks in the hot sun. He both the law and the law world. He both the law and the law world. So it's, it's much better than your, than your index entry The was. grand wizard in this movie of Mississippi is named Stump Sisson. He's played by... Is that Duce- Kurtwood Smith? Se- Kurtwood Smith. So Clarence I Boddicker. That you don't name your kids Stump until you have gone through all the other vowels... Yeah. Stamp. Gotcha. Stamp. I hear ya. Stimp. This, 
This is solid. Stop. This is the kind of movie where you... Kurtwood Smith shows up for, for 90 seconds, like everybody is in this yeah, movie. Yeah, and I got to say also, just on the on the topic of Kurtwood Smith while we're here, mm-hmm. Kurtwood Smith in The Dropout on Hulu, the story of Elizabeth Holmes, plays David Boys, which mm-hmm. if you've ever seen David Boys, that is a fantabulous piece of casting. Okay. That could only have been Kurtwood Smith. Go back and look at David Boys and say to yourself... Could anybody else but Kurt Woodsmith have played David Boys? And the answer is no. You practically yep. think Kurt Woodsmith <laughs> is David Boys. Go so ahead. There you go. That's why you're here because that is it. It seems like a tangent. It isn't because it's all legal. He's a he's a legal guy. Yep, absolutely true. He was on Team Gore in 2000, and yep. then wasn't he on like Definitely Team was. Trump yes. much yep. later? Like okay. yep. Also okay. on uh, Team uh, Harvey Weinstein. So. Oh great! Yep. I knew he had crossed over into questionable territory. Now I think I have to put in a rover sound for the career trajectory of David Boys. We brief it like the thing you file for a change of venue. Yeah, this is an easy one. This is yeah. this is very yeah. good. You brief the motion. Uh-huh. Brief the motion. If you had said motion, I would have given you a six. So I'm going to give you. Yeah, a I said five. motion before, so I didn't want to. I didn't want to be. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to give you five. It's very good. School. Cool. I'll give you a four, and I think we all know what you're doing with debrief. But let's let's see if we're right. Yeah, we debrief it like this movie's fucking two hour and two, twenty minute running time is what we do. With that. True. With debrief. Good lord. Okay, not what I thought you were going to do. Mm-hmm. But I guess you couldn't have done it because the, the scene where uh, Sandra Bullock is dressing McConaughey's wound, they established that they're not wearing underwear, either of them. Yeah. yeah. So I guess you couldn't. Th- okay, so I'll give you a five then. Okay. We uh, number it like the days of Billy Ray Cobb, James, Louis, Pete, Willard, Deputy Looney's lower right leg, Ethel's husband, Bud, and Grand Wizard, Stump Simpson. Their days were numbered. Yeah, True. True. Uh, I'll give you a four. I'm going to give you a six because you wrote all their names down and because uh, Deputy Looney is the second best name in this movie after Judge News. Yep, yep. He's breaking rocks in the hot sun. He both the law and the law work. He both the law and the law work. There, there is a theme here. Mm-hmm. That's certainly true. All right. So done. All right. We're going to talk Magoons. We're going to talk yes, McGovern's. All right. Oh, God. I, I need to come up with some, some adjectives. Our inquiry into this uh, unforgettable and unclassifiable television landmark is not of a degree callous. Sure. It's not of a degree laissez-faire. Mm, done it before, but okay. It, have I? It's, it's, it's not mm-hmm. of a degree a la carte. Ah, new one. Yes. Thank you. Good. What is it, Glenn? It's uh, of a degree uh, absolute, Chris. Outstanding. Let's do this thing. So I'm going to go into this movie scene by scene. It is a Schumacher joint. He is a visual stylist mostly. And what that, how that entails in this movie is basically it just looks really sweaty as we've talked about. Sure does. Um, This is kind of plot wise. This is kind of death wish by proxy. It is about vigilantism in a way. It does try to introduce some moral ambiguity. Doesn't quite Nail the dismount on that, but we begin, for example, in speaking of not really trafficking in ambiguity, we meet some evil, mulleted rednecks who are joyriding and having entirely too much fun just whooping as they drive because they are (laughs) drunk on beer and whooping as you drive is a thing you do. Now, there are people like this in the world. These people are drawn 
really broadly. They drive through a black neighborhood being dicks. They're right up to a general store. They take out their anger and bigotry on the snack foods. Yeah. I, I wish a New York Times reporter would sit down with them in a diner and uh, find out what they're, what just, they're really about. Just from your mouth to Satan's ears. And um, then we cut to Oliver Platt. He pulls up to Matthew McConaughey's house. McConaughey is Jake, a defense lawyer with a failing practice. We see a scene where a 10-year-old young girl is uh, raped and brutalized. This is Tanya. Now, while I wouldn't say it's done in a tasteful way per se, it is done in a way that fully commits to the brutality of it, at least. Like, Linda, we saw another film called The Moonshine War, in which there is a... Uh, a lynching or an attempted lynching and all that it does is it's to underscore how bad these guys are. Yeah. This is used the same way here but because it is the subject of the movie as opposed to just kind of a flavoring agent it does it's still not great but it does feel I don't know if it justifies its presence but it, it like it's yeah. it's about the thing. It's about it's what the movie's about. Yeah. It's it's weird because I think the movie actually does a reasonable job of underscoring how brutal it is mm-hmm. which as you say is necessary for the movie mm-hmm. um while also trying not to show you um too much directly i think yeah. they yeah. try very hard to um communicate the horrific nature of this attack mm-hmm. without um exploiting the young actress or the situation in a way that feels graphic. It's the brutality without anything that feels vulgar, I guess I would say. Vulgar or exploitative. I mean, it is exploitative, but it it is there. It's intentioned exploitativeness, I guess. Um, It it feels like it's knowing about what it's doing doesn't yeah. mean that what it's doing is great. Yeah, I, I haven't um, read anything about this, but I, I wondered if this was something that was adjusted through test screenings and things. Because, I, it, yeah, I mean, it's horrific, it's awful, and it's very brief, it's very suggestive, with not explicit, and I certainly wouldn't want it to be any more explicit than it is. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I wondered how much calibration went into I don't know how much it was calibrated in test screenings. My guess is it was calibrated a tremendous amount in editing, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of those things where you, I don't know whether it's true because sometimes people kind of get it on the first pass and you decide you just don't want to fuss with it. Um, that's also a valid way to cut a sequence like this, but it's one of those things where I can also imagine 150 rounds of editing, you know, on, yeah. on exactly what shot you're going to hold for how long. It's a very difficult sequence, I think, to shoot. And I think for what it is in this movie, they do a reasonable job, mm-hmm. you know, of, of handling it. So the cops, including uh, Dutton, what's his first name? Charles S. Dutton. Charles S. Dutton. Uh, arrest One Billy... of the many actors who I, I recognized in a recent Miami Vice that I watched. Uh, standing by for my, my, my forthcoming podcast, Vice Precedence. That's precedence with a C. All about right. all the actors who started on, on Miami he Vice. Is, uh, he's been around. He's Just been, want to tell you, Glenn, he had a full, long lovely long. head of hair in that Miami okay. Vice episode. Uh, the cops arrest Billy Ray and James Lewis Willard. There is an attempt. You talked about calibration. There is an attempt to separate these two so they're not the same. Uh, Billy Ray is the more purely evil. Uh, James Willard isn't the more, um, I would say, cowardly or at least uh, going he, along with it. Right. He's the he's not the dominant mm-hmm. one in this pair, which doesn't really matter that much. But I think 
the assumption in a lot of crimi- criminal duos that, that there's a dominant pair and a, and a kind of following person. Mm-hmm. There's a dominant mm-hmm. person and kind of a following person. And yes, they try to indicate who is the dominant, uh, and it is Billy Ray. Yeah, and because everybody, everybody in this movie is somebody, Billy Ray is Nikki Cat, who I, I almost didn't recognize, but a, a character actor who's in a bunch of Soderbergh movies. He's he's great in the Limey, particularly. Hmm. He usually plays jerks. Story checks out. Not as awful mm-hmm. as Billy Ray is. I mean, usually just jerks, not, you know, uh, right. violent, not murderous, monster. rapists. Yes, Nikki Cat. Uh, Sam Jackson plays Carly, the father of Tanya. And in as much as this movie pushes back against the kind of white knight, you know, Atticus Finch trope, he is doing a lot of the heavy lifting there. He is really making Carly as rounded a character as he can, not given much to do except in certain standout speechy scenes, but always is a viable rounded presence in the film. He goes to Jake and suggests he might do something. Um, we get a very quick shot of Sandra Bullock showing up in town with hair that, uh, back me up here, Linda, hair that is far too flat for this Mississippi summer to exist. Well, in. it's true, but this is what our hair was at that time. I mean, this yeah. is the this is the hair of uh, of this part of the '90s, you know. But I mean, it just it like it's Mississippi humidity. It yeah. would not physics is a thing. It still. depends on your hair. It depends okay. on your hair. Some people have hair <laughs> yeah. that is very resistant to frizzing. Okay. Other people have hair where the humidity, the humidity, the humidity <laughs> really plays uh, havoc on it. So I can buy that her hair, depending on product, might be flat in a, in it. I mean, some people's hair, when it's very humid, it is flat. That is exactly what it does. It goes flat okay. and not mine, not damp. Mine. <laughs> um, it just depends on your. It depends on your hair. I, I would give them a pass on that. She's this is Sandy of the '90s in a very particular moment. Sure. Is this the moment when we should talk about how Sandra Bullock in this movie is basically Marlon Brando in Superman, right? She has top billing. She's not in it that much. I read she got $6 million she, she, for five weeks of work. Yeah. Wikipedia. It's kind of a her. manic pixie Good for dream her, right? legal uh, researcher, you know, brilliant law student. Yeah, but I will uh, come back but, to this, but I like okay. that relationship and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Okay. I yeah, no, I, I liked it too. But again, she is top billing. She is billed over Samuel L. Jackson, billed over mm-hmm. Matthew McConaughey, mm-hmm. doesn't show up until half an hour into the movie and is only in it for a few scenes, right? I mean, they're big scenes, but yes. Yeah. yeah. Her, her role is pretty significant, but I but you know, we don't need to nitpick. So Carly lies in wait in the courthouse town hall, whatever the hell it is, and uh, he, he doesn't have a shotgun, as I imagined he would. He has a machine gun. An AR, is it an AR-15, Chris? I don't know from things. I mean, it is an assault rifle, yeah. It okay. is an AR, as they put it in the news reports about all these horrible events, I mean, it is an AR-style assault rifle. This movie is another great argument why civilians should not have them. Yep. As they're being arraigned, right, as they're going walking up to be arraigned or whatever, he comes out, shoots them up, kills them both dead, also shoots a cop in the leg. Uh, Carl is arrested. Uh, Jake, Jake goes to see him. He takes the case. This is when <laughs> we introduce Kevin Spacey as the DA. And I just sat there going, oh, oh fuck. Well, here's I, the thing. Uh, I had no idea. If I'm going to watch, watch Kevin Spacey right now, I want to watch him play a monster. Yeah. Um, what I don't want is to watch Kevin Spacey play a more ambiguous, like, you know, if you're going to give me Kevin Spacey right now, I'd rather he was a cartoon. 
sympathetic um, alien. And this guy is a, this right. guy is definitely a bit of a cartoon. But is, isn't this the same accent and everything that he's doing on House of Cards? It is the House of Cards accent. It is the as the film goes on, it becomes more and more Foghorn Leghorn. It becomes more. I'm just a simple country chicken lawyer. But uh, see, and this is. Way. I mean, I understand this. This was the moment for Spacey. This is the year after Usual Suspects. But I feel like like Spacey is kind of taking up some of the oxygen that I wanted Patty McGee to have in this movie, right? Spacey is the one who's extending vowels for no reason. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's doing all the stuff that we want Patty to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's exactly right. Because we then get the introduction of Judge Noose. <laughs> this is Patty McGee. Gone, as you say, Chris, are his kind of sine wave inflections. His voice does <laughs> not go up and down. He stays, he stays right up here. Uh, he's, he's, and his voice, he's, I think even though he's an old man and this is his final role, is it his final role? No, he's, he's in Columbo after this. Oh, really? Okay. He's, in, so... he's Eric Prince in the Rue McClanahan Columbo after this. Oh, right. His voice is way up here. He's doing this. And if you remember, Chris, the final confrontation, uh, with six in the episode of the prisoner hammer into Anvil where he says, you destroyed No. Destroyed yourself, a character flaw. You were afraid of your masters. A weak link in the chain of command, waiting to be broken. You snivel and grovel. It's way up there. That, and it doesn't leave there. Now, Linda, as someone who knows Patrick McGowan maybe from a couple roles, you right. remember him from the two that we, like, do you get an impression, a strong impression of him here? I mean, I think there is a... Just as there is a law and order judge type, yeah, there is a Grisham judge type, particularly okay. in his stories that are set in the South. And this judge is very much the Grisham judge from cases where the defendant or the little guy, whether it's the defendant in a, in a criminal case or one of the parties in a civil case, where the defendant feels like they don't have a chance because of the mm-hmm. judge... Um, this is very much the style of the judge, right? The judge is very laid back, casual, unfair, kind of casually racist in a certain Mm -hmm. way, like casually biased, not only racist, but also kind of casually um, Mm -hmm. pro-prosecutor, suspicious of defense attorneys. So it's it's a pretty, I would say, a pretty common... Grisham judge. Okay. I was expecting the film to play this hand a little bit stronger uh, with him being overtly racist, but it's exactly as they say, that he is, there's a casualness to this, which suggests, which implies that it is the norm, right? Yeah. That's the so thing. Grisham was, was a real lawyer, right? He, mm-hmm. he knows what he's talking about. He's not speaking strictly theoretically. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's trying to draw the distinction between I don't like the word overt because he is in many ways overtly racist. But oh, sure, I, yeah. but I, you know, you have your more kind of in your face, candidly racist, like violently racist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are Ku Klux Klan, you know, depictions in here. There is there are you know cross burnings and houses set on fire and things like that. Mm-hmm. He is of the the kind of more institutional, right? Persistent, difficult to root out. You know, like what that this judge does in this case, would you be able to actually object to? And mm-hmm. yet you feel from the beginning like Carly probably doesn't have a chance. You yeah. know? Yeah. He's also uh, a mediocre painter. 
Yeah, yes, we don't really true. get a chance to true. see much. But but is he painting? He's like painting a, a house or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Sutton plays Lucian, uh, who is Jake's mentor, who has been disbarred or whatever, and uh, can only give him advice from afar. A day drinker. Um, uh-huh. a, a really common Grisham character. A very common Grisham Introduced character. Introduced via, via portrait. I like it when we see a painted portrait yeah. of a character and then we meet the real person. And but, this is, of yep. course, one of the uh, the films where you see Donald Sutherland and Keeper Sutherland. Yep. Yes. The, so the other weird father-son thing is this, this movie, I mean, they're not really related, but this movie is the same year as Lone Star. A great movie, which stars Chris Cooper, who plays who plays Deputy Looney, right. and Matthew McConaughey as his father, but seen as a younger man in flashbacks. Right. And that movie, right. I think, was out right. at the same time. A time to kill was. Yeah, yeah. this okay. is early in the in the arc of Chris Cooper. I think. So. Yeah, he was coming up, but he looked middle aged. <laughs> yeah, age twenty five. So this is a couple years before 24, right? So this is the era when Kiefer Sutherland only plays vampires, serial killers, and psychopaths and clansmen. Yep. Yep. Uh, so Jake wants to move the case from Madison County, where it will likely get an all-white jury. Uh, we meet Kiefer Sutherland, as you guys mentioned. He is one of the boys, maybe Billy Ray's brother. And he goes out and he sends up a bat signal to get some Klansmen back because we hear that the Klansmen, the clan isn't really in this these parts recently, but uh, he is going to... Uh, call on the bat phone for them <laughs> this is a scene where um we get the big shot of this southern courthouse courtroom which is huge and uh it looks great in a way that the courtrooms look great in movies without any fluorescent lighting i appreciated that they didn't shoot this in burbank right no sure according to the wikipedia entry they had to build some sound stages but they actually built them in mississippi so that they could do the exteriors in mississippi but it's true that many courthouses are much plainer than (laughs) many courtrooms are much plainer than courtrooms on tv some of them look like massive english libraries but (laughs) many of them do not often are windowless right i mean they're often windowless. well it's not just that they're windowless but a lot of them look more like they would exist inside an office park rather than inside a cathedral or the new york (laughs) public library um yep they look more like office park buildings they are made inexpensively they are they are built to house a lot you know to 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 kind of process through a lot of people as opposed Mm -hmm. to this idea that you know, television and film will give you, and I'm not saying like that there aren't some courtrooms that are like this. And I commend to you, as I always do, the book, um, The Devil's Candy, about the shooting of uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, where they oh, had a long, I, long, I read that after you long, recommended it last summer. Long mm. process of looking for a courtroom, uh, a genuine courtroom in which to mm. shoot those. So some of the courtrooms that you see in these, you know, great courtroom scenes are real courtrooms, but mm. a lot of them look more as i said like office park settings but yes this one is very grand as almost all of them it has a balcony this one yeah yeah i've been on juries twice once in in ventura california and once here in dc and uh, yeah in both cases the courtroom was very low ceiling nondescript and it, like small enough that whenever the you know the lawyers would confer with the judge, like they would turn on this kind of electronic noisemaker so that we couldn't right. hear what they were saying. And yeah. and most of them, you know, you got to remember most. And this is a, you know, I'm, I'm again a, a little bit of a tangent, but you know, most most trials are not television and film sure. productions. They're not made to be seen. 
by a gazillion people. There are certainly trials that are televised. Mm -hmm. But when you see trials televised, you often do see how plain the courtrooms are because people are not putting on a stage play. Mm -hmm. They are doing a bunch of work in a short period of time and they're fitting a lot of courtrooms into a state built building. Yep. So, yes, but this is a beautiful and grand courtroom, as you will often see uh, right. on screen. The movie does establish that that Kevin Spacey's prosecutor has higher political ambitions and he's like chosen this case because it mm -hmm. seems like a slam dunk for him. And, and obviously he has the ear of the judge. And so, I mean, maybe he could have pulled some strings to get the nice courtroom, right? Could to be. make it could seem be. more. Could absolutely be. be. So, and certainly there's a lot of community interest in this case. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's clear that this is a very high profile case. So for all I know, maybe this is a place where they have the one courtroom that's for the really high profile <sighs> cases the same way that at the AFI theater in, you know, downtown yeah. Silver Spring, you've got the one big majestic Art Deco theater and then the other ones that are, are yeah. a little teeny. So when, when I went up there a couple weeks ago and saw Soylent Green and Army of Darkness on the same day, they were both in Theater One. It was nice. so, good. so good. Love Theater mm -hmm. One. Shout out to Theater One. Yep. So uh, uh, clearly, Kevin Spacey ordered the Inherit the Wind courtroom. <laughs> exactly, the, exactly. And the and, To Kill a Mockingbird courtroom. And the To Kill a Mockingbird blah, courtroom. Blah, blah, blah. Your Honor, we would like to request bail. Denied. I have never allowed bail in a capital murder case, and I don't feel that a, an exception is called for today. Good enough. Your Honor, we will be filing for a change of venue. I anticipated this. Uh, let me save you some time, Mr. Pregance. Your motion is denied. Well, if it pleases the court, Your Honor, we have not yet filed. We are simply indicating our intent to file in writing by letting you know. I said request denied. Your Honor, how can you summarily deny this request? It is quite clear that Carly Haley cannot receive a fair trial here in Canton. Now, we feel... That's enough, sidebar. So... Omar Noose uh, refuses a change of venue prematurely, but Sandra Bullock supplies Jake with some precedent that he can use and quote, and Omar gets shut down temporarily. Uh, Ellen offers to help Jake by displaying, you know, uh, moxie and charm and spunk and know-how. And I love a hero uh, researcher, though, mm -hmm. man. <laughs> yeah. Hero researcher, exactly. She's supposed to be a law student, right? The mm -hmm. way that, that yeah. uh, mm -hmm. Julia Roberts in the Pelican Brief is like a high-level, well-regarded yep. law student. Right. Sandra Bullock is five years older than Matthew McConaughey, mm -hmm. but he keeps calling her kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well. You know. I don't know. Uh, top billing. She got top billing, so yeah. <laughs> she gets to play younger. So he turns her down for her help. Uh, Cobb turns out is Kiefer Sutherland's character. He is. He goes to visit the Grand Dragon of Mississippi, the aforementioned Kurtwood Smith. Kurtwood Smith, because he's evil, doesn't blink in the entire exchange that they have, because evil people don't blink. Uh, he offers to make Cobb leader of the local clan, and then Cobb gives him some information about Jake's family. Uh, Carl gets escorted to the hospital. This seemed highly unorthodox, but, you know. Yeah whatever and uh, Carl goes to apologize to Looney yeah. whose knee he blew off uh, he confesses that he knew exactly what what he's doing and he's sorry I figure this would come back Jake at this point has already sort of dropped that they're going to plead insanity so yeah. when Carl is saying I knew exactly what I was doing he's essentially saying insanity is not really true mm -hmm. what they really want is something more like extreme emotional distress but that's not you know, that's beyond the pale. So they go with insanity. There are dramatic reasons for Deputy Looney or, you know, suffering this horrible injury, losing his leg. But I, I appreciated this because generally when people get shot in movies, they either die immediately or flesh wound, no big deal. They never suffer a life-changing, permanent, 
horrible injury like like Looney right. does. So, and this this is another this is another Grisham thing, which is usually he is pretty good in the stuff that he writes of explaining that things have costs and that there are often costs, including not just for you, but for others mm-hmm. in choices that you make, even if you decide that they are the right choice. There are costs in this film for Jake. There are costs for other people other than Jake because of things that Jake does. And one of the thing that's, things that's agonizing to me about the firm in the film version is that in the film version of the firm, and pardon me for spoiling it if you happen to still be waiting to watch the firm. But um, in the film version of the firm, at the end, Tom Cruise comes up with this amazing plan to manipulate everybody and turn the mob against the firm and the everybody against everybody else so that he and his wife can uh, just drive off into a new city and start over and he will still be able to be presumably a high-paid lawyer and all this other stuff. In the book, he essentially has to walk away from his life. And that's something that the films often cheat um, uh-huh. compared to the books. Uh, it's similar to, you know, if you know how the client ends, you know, the kid sort of has to go off and disappear with his mom. He's not uh-huh. able to kind of just stay around and like be Susan Sarandon's law clerk. Um, <laughs> and, and so very often there are costs. And I think that's one of the strengths of these books. And I think that Looney being injured is a, is a critical piece of complicating a little bit the idea of what Carl Lee did and whether you think this is a thing that it is justifiable for people to do. Because when you take a gun and you decide to go and shoot a bunch of people in a crowded courthouse, you cannot know what is going to happen. And that mm-hmm. is essentially what happened to Looney in this situation is very foreseeable to a guy like Carl who is going in there with a great big gun. So, Right. Yeah. And what this scene is doing very intentionally is introducing the concept that now the audience knows, that Looney knows, that he's not really insane. Right. And you think that that's going to come back. The film chooses not to do that. But it is, it's a layer that the film wouldn't necessarily otherwise have. You can tell that Looney is not having any of talking to Carl at that moment, right? Mm -hmm. But they are cagey about what Looney is thinking as Carl apologizes to him. They they Mm -hmm. don't either have Looney say, well, uh, nice of you to say, but I don't care because I lost my leg. And they don't have Looney say, I understand. They do leave it somewhat open. Um, but I agree with you, by the yeah. way, that would never happen. <laughs> there are so <laughs> many scenes in, in Justified of, uh, you know, the marshals like checking out the courthouse, checking out the hallway, checking out the like, I was like, how'd they miss Carl just like sitting there in the closet with the machine gun? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. And I don't know. I'm not in a position to know whether in a smaller you know, in a smaller community that probably has smaller, you know, resources or had at that mm-hmm. time smaller resources. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how plausible it is that somebody could have um, simply lain in wait, as we say. Yeah. I don't know. Is that an attempt at irony or something? The fact that he does it inside the courthouse, not, you know, not on the steps or, you know, outside or something? I don't like, think so. I mean, I think the point of it is more that he um, he is getting to these guys where he can. 
right? He's getting right. to these guys where he knows they're going to be. Like he goes the night before, right? He just waits mm-hmm. there all night for them to yeah. come in in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Um, so among Cobb's recruits uh, for the clan is, well, I think we, it's not expressly made clear here yet, but it is certainly suggested that it's the sheriff's deputy. Uh, in a bit of mirroring, uh, Jake takes press questions at his church while Tanya and her family attend their church. Uh, shortly after the NAACP shows up and wants to represent Carl, we get a shot of a clan meeting. Kind of demonizing the NAACP a little bit, right? I thought yeah, it was a little I had some, weird. I had it's some there. misgivings about that, about that yes. story, sort of playing a little bit of a both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, like on the one hand, the racists are trying to exploit this trial, but on the other hand, so is the NAACP. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying there are never opportunists on every side of everything, but I was not crazy about that part, and I was sort of glad that it ended quickly. Yeah, they got out of that pretty quick. That scene of uh, Carl's family coming into the church and then the singing stop. Like, I didn't know if they were being, I mean, it becomes clear they're being welcomed and they're ushered into the front pew and everything, but it seemed for a second like they were being shunned, right? Because like just mm-hmm. the whole celebration stops when they walk in. Yeah, that's a little inessential mystery that I think the film is cultivating. It does that a few times. Um, so we see the new recruits being initiated. I don't need to see a clan initiation. Uh, Jake's wife received a call warning her to get out of the house. Ashley Judd, by the way. A very, very sweaty Ashley Judd. Very sweaty Ashley Judd. A very young Ashley Judd. This is her moment. She's in everything at this time. Mm-hmm. Is this before or after double? This is before Double Jeopardy, right? Uh, I think this is like a year before that. This is say. This is before, but half not too a year yeah, she. I mean, heat yeah. is the winter before this, so yeah, right. it's just she's in everything. And if you wanted, if we had, uh, you know, an accent specialist here, I think while McConaughey has a, a legit accent, it is a Texas accent. I think um, Ashley Judd's accent feels the least overdone here. It feels the most authentic to me because it is a part of her. Uh, it's part of her inflection. It does not dominate how you hear her. It is there in the speech. It is not the only thing you hear. Right. I was going to say she's, but she's actually Southern, right? This is what I'm saying. This is is why I feel like it's not forced. She's not pushing it. By the way, this is, this is 96. Double Jeopardy is 99. So yeah, this is a very similar. This is a very similar, but it's a very similar I was still off by, by two years, which is a, no, that's but a real... in the middle, but in the middle, what you really have is like kiss the girls is yeah. one thing that's in uh, the middle. But like the next really big thing is, is double jeopardy. So a good showing. Chris. Okay. A good Thank show. you, Linda. It means a lot to me that you said that because this is, as you know, my only skill. If we're going to talk about whose accent is the rightest, I want to shout out Brenda Fricker. Yeah, Irish sure. Brenda Fricker, right, who I would not have guessed was Irish. I feel like I have a pretty good ear for when you have Europeans, such as Patty McGee. When he tries to play American, the results are fairly weird and, and yep. hilarious. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but Brenda Next. Fricker, perfect. Yep. Uh, so somebody who identifies as Mickey Mouse, uh, probably should have thought about it before making the call, says to get out of the house because the clan bur- is burning a cross on their lawn. Turns out it's too late because the clan is already burning a cross on their lawn. Yeah, uh, those stealth crosses. She just turns around and it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. like Look Batman the window, with those girl. crosses. Yeah. Jake confesses to Ashley Judd. Is it Carla? Is that her name? Carla, yeah, um, I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, she didn't, that he didn't call the sheriff to warn him but what Carl wanted to do, um, this gets her very upset. Uh, we learn that Edith, uh, Brenda, Brenda Fricker, Barbara Fricker, Brenda Fricker, is... Ethel, right? Ethel. It's, it's, I think Sorry. it's Ethel. It's one of those names you don't Ethel. hear so it much is anymore. Ethel, right? Is getting threats. 
Uh, the NAACP and the Reverend try to convince Carl to let them represent him. He refuses, and this is feeding into the White Knight thing, but you get a sense that there's a little bit more to it because, again, uh, Sam Jackson is Sam Jackson, and he can in invest it with some layers. So At the time, Jake is very cocky about it, and Jake yeah. feels like, oh, this is because of Carl's great confidence in me yep. that he doesn't want to take the NAACP's kind of civil rights adjacent lawyer, you know, who has... I think two black assistants with him mm -hmm. when he comes mm -hmm. to see Carly, um, yep. a, a white lawyer, but he has two black assistants with him. And I think at the time Jake is really feeling himself a little bit about, I've convinced Carly that I am uh, the man for him. And they have that very light moment, which perhaps you're, you're about to mention, but they have that, you know, Jake is feeling very light when he gets back down to Carly's cell and says, you know, we make a hell of a team. And Carly says, well, I'm in here and you're out there. So we are not a team. Right. Um, and it's, yes. it's a, it turns out to be a kind of, you know, significant moment, I think. I'm girding my loins for, for your eye roll, both of you, your mutual eye rolls when I say this. But I like it occurs to me that this is the moment that in the mid-90s when Samuel L. Jackson is like he is the I, I cannot think of another A-list black actor who is so frequently like schooling white co-stars about racial matters in this time, right? That is what mm -hmm. he is. For good and for ill, it is often what he's called upon to do in movies, including but not limited to this movie. Yes. And uh, I mean, this is the year after Die Hard with a Vengeance, which uh, like he and Bruce Willis stopped the movie a couple times to argue about who's a racist and, and who's not. You're a racist. You don't like me because I'm white. I don't like you because you're going to get me killed. So this was a task that Sam Jackson was frequently called on in this era to perform when he was not uh, telling everyone to hold on to their butts because the dinosaur fences are turned off. Right. Or quoting Ezekiel, bragging about his foot massage technique and then going off and being Mace Windu and then Nick Fury. Sure. Yep. All right, so uh, a clan member goes up to Jake's house with a bomb and gets ambushed because uh, Mickey Mouse had called the sheriff to warn them. They take him down and they save the house. Jake throws the bomb after the alarm is going off, which right. would seem to me to be far too late to throw the That's bomb. Yeah, really... why did he open that? Like, just did he touches the suitcase. Yeah. So I understand this is a small town sheriff's department. Yeah. Maybe they don't have a bomb squad or anything. I checked a couple things against the book. I didn't have time to check this against the book. I bet this isn't in the book. <laughs> yeah. The hurling of the explosive. Hell of an arm. Of I mean, that was a beautiful pass. I think the threats to the house are absolutely in the book. The threats to yeah. Jake are in the book. And the destruction of the house, which we haven't gotten to yet. But the destruction of the house, I think, is in the book. But I believe Jake hurling the bomb is probably mm. not in the book. Also, I think whichever, it's not Billy Ray, it's like the other Klansman guy, right, who actually, they catch him planting the bomb. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Charles Dutton, the sheriff, breaks that guy's ankles like four times each in the course mm. of asking him what's going on, what's in, you know, what's in the box, what's, what's in, in the, the box. Yeah. Right. What's uh, in the box? He just, he just keeps breaking more ankles on that guy. <laughs> yep. Yep, yep. So Jake sends his family away, sensibly. Then he goes to see the judge who's painting on his um, veranda. Is that what would be a veranda? What would that be? That'd be a balcony, I suppose. And he denies the change of venue uh, and makes some vague threats about uh, Jake's career. Heard you had a little trouble last night. Yes, sir. Makes you wonder about the sensibleness of taking this case, don't it, Jake? This is a beautiful place you have here, Judge. I'll get right to the point. I've uh, thoroughly reviewed uh, your brief requesting a, a change of venue, 
And I agree with you. I, I think it's impossible to find a fair and impartial jury here in Canton. In fact, I think it's impossible to find a, a fair and impartial jury anywhere in Mississippi. And as such, a jury here would be uh, as fair as a jury anywhere else. So I decided to deny your request for a change of venue. Well, I guess that, that gives me something to appeal. Uh, actually, no. I spoke to Judge Dent, and he led me to believe that the Supreme Court would uphold my ruling. You certainly have covered your bases, Judge. Say, you're a good lawyer. You're bright, you're ambitious, talented. You could be somebody around here. You sure you want to be known as the man that defended that murderer? Could be very unpopular. Talk to your um, client. Jake goes to Lucian and meets the drunk psychiatrist who will testify that Carl was, in fact, insane. Um, that is, of course, the great and good M. Emmett Walsh. I think it was Roger Ebert who had the M. Emmett Walsh rule, which is that no film with M. Emmett Walsh or Harry Dean Stanton can be all bad. All right. Um, and who is, again, because the 90s, and we're trying to just cover all our bases with this movie, who's the other head shrinker? The prosecution we'll get, side? We'll get to him okay. and, the, okay. and the fact okay. that this is one universe. Yes. Yep. By okay. the way, I, I have an update. <laughs> yeah. I have an update. Uh, they froze. Seconds later, the suspect yelled again. They ran back across the front yard, then slowly turned the corner. The empty suitcase had been tossed a few feet away. Next to the man was a neat pile of a dozen sticks of dynamite. Between his legs was a large, round-faced clock with wires bound together with silver electrical take tape. Is it diffused? Ozzy asked anxiously. Yeah, he replied between heavy, rapid breaths. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Linda, how did you find that so quickly? Cinematic. No hurling, no hurling of the, uh, no hurling of the explosion. Is there an index in a time to kill where you look up bomb? And uh, it tells there you what is a search on? function in a time yes. to kill where you look for the word All right. bomb. Yes, Chris, there is. As a matter of fact, I never joined the Kindle Revolution, Linda. Uh, I, I had I... this. I had this on Apple Books. I got it on Apple Books today. And uh, and therefore, I knew that it would pop right up. That's how I knew. You know, I bought my copy of Evie Drake Starts Over in hard copy so that you could sign it Just going to tell you right I'm, now, by the way, Chris. I'm... It's Evie, but that's okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. Look, look. I think at this point in popular understanding, it's Evie. Yep. I don't want to be part of the wrong crowd that's that's misrepresenting your work. No, it's cool, dude. I, I'm just Evie here forevermore. to give updates on the book A Time to Kill. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Much appreciated. So the clan attacks uh, Edith and her husband, Ethel. Bud. Ethel. Ugh. Yeah, Glenn. Ethel and her husband, Glenn. Bud. I don't know. Sorry. I just was so focused on Bud because I love the name Bud. Ellen comes over to where a very hungover Jake is recovering uh, from his hangover. Um, there is a weird joke about drunk driving where he crashes his car into the sidewalk. Uh, you know, we need a little levity at this point. Yeah. They go out for brunch and he uh, postures a little bit about how much he loves the death penalty and he doesn't like them northern liberals. You're opposed to the death penalty. Yes, sir. Why? You're not? Mm-mm. Actually, I'm very much in favor of it. I'd like to go back to hangings on the court-ass lawn if we could. Are you kidding, right? No. The only problem with the death penalty, Roark, is that we do not use it enough. Well, have you told your client Carly Haley has? Carly Haley does not deserve the death penalty. Now, the two men who raped his daughter did. Okay, see, well, how do you decide who dies and who doesn't? Yeah, simple. Okay, you take the crime and you take the criminal. Mm -hmm. Now, say a, a 
crack dealer. Guns down an undercover cop. Well, you strap his ass to the chair, flick the switch. You know, for some reason, I, I, I thought you were a liberal. Well, I am a liberal, Roland. What I am not is a card-carrying ACLU radical. I do not believe in forgiveness nor in rehabilitation. I believe in safety. I believe in justice. He doesn't like her politics, but he likes her passion. Um, Maybe needs a little bit of both right now. Sure. Yes, uh, he's he's pro death penalty. She's anti death penalty. Yep. Is that a like a little cigar stub that he always has in his mouth? Yes, that it is. Bugged me. Yes, it is. What the hell is that? I've never yeah. seen a person do really? that in real life. Gross. Yeah. Uh, jury selection begins. They make a big thing of this about they hold up the envelope that no one will know the people. So I thought we were going to get, again, conspiracy. Like I thought we were going to get a thing where Kevin Spacey knows who the people are. But no, it's not a real thing. It's just a thing that is wasting yeah. 30 seconds of this two hour and 20 minute running time. Yeah, there are. It's, it's the kind of thing that Grisham puts in books a lot is mm-hmm. the idea that jury selection is, you know, there's a whole book about mm-hmm. a jury and the it's called The Runaway Jury. Mm-hmm. Um, which goes into a lot of detail about the selection of jurors and all that stuff, but it's not this. Uh, it's not this that case. was the most interesting part of being on a jury to me was the selection process and like the kinds of things that people were saying to try to get out of it. And the yeah. the only times I've ever been called for potential jury duty, I was immediately dismissed as soon as I said I went to law school. Mm-hmm. Ah, interesting. Uh, so there's a crowd outside the courthouse chanting for Carl Lee's freedom. They are met by the Ku Klux Klan, which erupts into a riot, which results in the Grand Wizard getting burned up by a Molotov cocktail and a kind of, I would say, light knifing of Jake in the back of the thigh. We learn uh, when the Ku Klux Klan comes back to Clan HQ, I guess, that uh, Stump is dead and Kiefer threatens to uh, escalate to the war. And in fact, they do. They start throwing burning crosses onto the lawns of folks. Jake takes Ellen back to her motel. They come close to doing the deed, but they don't, even though they're both looking incredibly attractive in yeah, this scene. So, so much uh, baby oil or whatever, I don't know, whatever movie sweat mm-hmm. substance there is. Jake returns to find his house burning and his, look, I love dogs. His reaction, crying out for Max, I thought Max was Oliver Platt. And for a long time, I thought, why is Oliver Platt in his house? But that's, I mean, I would do the same thing. But uh, yeah, I was confused. Yes, the scene where even his buddy Oliver Platt urges him to drop the case. This is the next morning. He comes up, says, drop the case. This is where I was thinking. He's in the clan. He's one of the people under the hoods. Uh, the dog shows up. Chris, can you talk about Save the Cat as a thing? That's a Save the Cat as a screenplay thing, right? What does that mean? Yeah, but okay. Again, another eye roll. I actually thought, and this is not an unreasonable belief, but I thought Save the Cat actually came from Alien because she could escape, but she actually goes back to save the fucking cat. Yeah, I don't know. Literally goes back to save the cat, but that is not the origin of it. That's not the origin of it as far as I know. As I understand it, Save the Cat is the concept that when you establish a main character, a protagonist, who you want people to follow and care about, you should have them do something. It can be something small, but you should have them do something in the early going that is admirable or heroic or compassionate. Um, Even if they are a jerk, you should have Uh them, like if you're trying to establish a main character who is basically an asshole, You should have them go down the street and save a cat just so people understand that there is a little bit of heart in there. Now, I do not know if I am explaining this concept correctly, Yeah, 
But that is how I understand it, is that it is part of the establishment of a primary character who may or may not be terribly sympathetic overall. I, and I mean, yep. I don't understand why it would come in here since he doesn't, it's not like he's looking, I mean, he's just standing by the wreckage of his house calling for his dog, right? He's not like actively searching or anything. I don't think um, it's applicable and, uh, here. I think what's applicable here is that um, people love to insert peril to an animal uh, as a very sh- emotionally manipulative part of stakes yes. raising. Yes. This yeah. movie came out three weeks after Independence Day, the number one movie of 1996, where I clearly remember the shot of the dog like jumping out of the death ray or whatever, and everyone in the theater being like, yay! And it's like millions of people have already died. You know, we have seen that's entire why a cities destroyed. There's a website called Does Dog Die or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, this, this is why many of the people who tell me they hate the film Sideways hate the film Sideways because the main character kills a dog accidentally. But he kills a dog. The difference is... in uh, between the the original, uh, I can't remember who made the original version of Insomnia, but when that movie was remade by Chris Nolan in the United States, so a very, very faithful remake, but one of the changes is when our crooked cop needs a bullet that has clearly gone through flesh for so that he can falsify the ballistics or whatever, in the original, he shoots a dog. And I don't know if it was Al Pacino or Christopher Nolan, whoever was like, we can't have our flawed, you know, antihero even do that. So he shoots a dog that is already dead in the American version because yeah. he can't kill a but dog. But think, think about, and I, I mean this somewhat sincerely, think about the emotional heft that John Wick was able to get out sure. of the yeah. fact that he's avenging the the killing of his dog like Daisy. that th- th- that but she was such a sweet dog. silly right it doesn't <laughs> no. seem like a ridiculous obviously it's symbolic it stands for the loss of his wife and all that stuff mm-hmm. but the when you set up the bad guys as having killed somebody's puppy that is powerful shit that is powerful yep. shit yeah i mean they already they raped a 10-year-old girl. You know? Yeah, there was that. So the next day... Well, no, but for Jake. Like the, the softness okay, yes. of Jake. Right. Go ahead, Glenn. The next day the trial begins, the National Guard is there. The Free Carl crowd is there. The Spacey is there. The Klan is there. The trial begins with the testimony of uh, one of the boys' mothers, uh, the great and good Beth Grant, who Grant. Some, sometimes she doubts your commitment to sparkle motion, <laughs> manages to introduce the prospect of Billy Ray uh, raping other young girls. Um, so um, he's getting first blood here, is the, is the idea. Jake is, uh, well, I, I right. say, I'll do that's highly unorthodox. I will defer to Linda on this, but I assume that's a totally fair, legit lawyer move. What is? Like, when to just ask the defendant, like, how many other girls did you rape before you raped this other girl? <laughs> I mean, I know he doesn't get away with it. But Here's still. the thing. You never want to assume that you could ask anybody any of the questions that uh, people ask in movies and on television. Okay. Because honestly, <laughs> the thing to know, and if you really want to know more about this, there's a great passage about this in the Monica Hesse book, American Fire, which is about a, a very famous mm-hmm. arson case. But trials are boring for the most part. Trials are very meticulously laid out and boring. And they are not two minutes of being like, admit your guilt. Yeah. And, you know, ladies you and can't gentlemen. can't handle the truth. Propo- like, yeah, exactly. So. so next up is the sheriff. Uh, and again, uh, Jake is, uh, I think the term of art is Franklin and bashing it. He's being wildly unorthodox. <laughs> uh, he gets the fact that uh, the other kid signed the confession into the trial, which was never supposed to be introduced. Um, 
We learn that Ethel's husband has died and she doesn't let him off the hook again. This is good. This is what you want out of a movie like this where we are admitting some shades of gray. This is what I mean about cost. This is the idea of cost. This is exactly what you're talking about, Linda. And this is uh, this is good. I would push a little harder on this, but I didn't make this film. Uh, the jury at dinner takes a preliminary vote. There's lots of guilty, some undecided, one guilty. At the trial, the state calls Chris Cooper's deputy... Um, Looney, whose leg got shut off. There's a bit of business with Carly urging Jake to ask if he thinks Carly should go to jail. He did what I would have done. What, what do you mean by that, Deputy Looney? I mean, I don't blame him for what he did. Those boys raped his little girl. Objection, Your Honor. The witness's opinion on this matter is irrelevant. Your Honor, I believe Deputy Looney has earned the right to speak here today. Overruled. Continue. Go ahead, Dwayne. I got a little girl. Somebody rapes her. He's a dead dog. I'll blow him away just like Carl Lee did. Objection, Your Honor! Do you think the jury should convict Carl Lee Haley? Don't answer that question, Deputy. He's a hero. You turn him loose. Jury will disregard. You turn him loose! Your Honor, you silence. I expected Judge Noose to have a harder reign on this things. He yeah. lets things. He lets this go for a I, very oh, right, long time. Right. And I mean, look, this is ridiculous, right? Yeah. Uh, the the whole idea of asking Looney, you know, do you think he should go to jail? Do you think he intended to do it? Most of those things are irrelevant. Um, fact witnesses are there to tell you what they saw and heard and smelled and tasted and touched mm -hmm. um they are not there to give opinions about the mm -hmm. legal outcome most of this is absolutely not something that you would be able to do but i do think that the symbolism of this is valid which is mm -hmm. jake understanding that carl lee knows things about his case that jake doesn't know and understands mm -hmm. things about the community and the people that carl lee knows in the community who include Looney, who they established Carl has known since he was a little kid, um, that Carl Lee knows things that Jake doesn't know and that Jake learns to eventually be willing to trust that sometimes he should listen to his client. Could you actually do it this way? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. Is there some validity in saying Carl has insight into his own case? And again, as Glenn has been talking about, this isn't just a matter of the brilliant white attorney figuring out how to solve this problem that I think, you know, there's a place for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about here, even though I, I did like, I was aware that this was kind of a sensational twist scene and, you know, and I, and I thought it was effective. I, I thought it worked. And also Chris Cooper's a good actor, you know, but um, I was thinking, yes, Looney is a victim in this case. He lost his leg, but he's also a cop. And it occurred to me that all of this film's skepticism, anyway, is about the prosecutor. It's about the judge. Other than the the one deputy who is who is a secret Klansman, uh, the guy who looks exactly like Michael Ironside, but is not him. Mm -hmm. It's otherwise very credulous of the cops, it right? Is, like yeah. like it Charles is. Dutton, the sheriff, is seems to be totally above board. Yep. Uh, Looney, obviously. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Ellen performs some skullduggery, breaking into the, the psychiatrist that the state is offering into his office. This state psychiatrist, Chris, what's this actor's name? Anthony Held. 
Anthony and he, of held course, or healed. And I've heard it. I've heard Anthony it healed or held, but I, if I had not heard Linda admit on a recent episode that she never saw this movie or only recently saw this movie because she was too scary, he is Doctor Chilton in the Silence of the Lambs. He is the creepy, creepy chief psychiatrist at the Baltimore asylum where Hannibal Lecter is is held. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he's the one who's you know hitting on Clarice Starling and being a creep and um, unwittingly aids. Lecter's escape by allowing Lecter to steal a pen, which he then uses, you know, to slip his cuffs later and yada, 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 while he is trying to flirt with uh, Clarice Starling. But the presentation here, uh, his his persona is exactly the same, same character. As as Absolutely. It's the like same the same character. haircut. Yeah. You yeah. just chicken fry him a little to give him a bit of an accent. And <laughs> yeah. it's 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 the same guy. So the state psychiatrist uh, says Haley is not insane. Ellen shows up with info that this man has never testified on trial that anyone is actually insane. As they're leaving the courthouse, uh, Kiefer Sutherland is up on a just a grassy knoll somewhere. He shoots at Jake but misses hitting a guard. Again, uh, what the hell with this security? Now the National Guard are there and they let a guy with a rifle get on the roof across the street from the courthouse. Yep. What yep. are these guys doing? It's a valid point. Uh, later that night... The deputy um, that we've seen, the Michael Ironside deputy, pulls her over and the clan ties her up and leaves her to die of exposure. This was um, this was a turn that I did not expect the film to take because this is actually pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah, scary. I, I think um, I think this again goes back to understanding that if you are going to take on certain kinds of vast forces you are going to face costs. And Uh I think that is what you see, not only with what happens to Ethel, but I think there is a commentary here on the cowardice of people who often will not go after you necessarily, Uh but will take out their anger at you on other people, right? And Ellen is fairly... Uh, without defenses because she is by herself she is just driving in her car she is not prepared to be attacked personally so you're sort of getting the sense I think this also does a good job of kind of communicating that Jake is feeling the the walls closing in a little bit right Jake is feeling a little bit um this is too big. He's gotten his kid and his wife out of town at this point, but he's still feeling like, okay, Ethel's never going to forgive me for the fact that her husband died of a stroke because they were experiencing threats and attacks at their house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it, it's another example of him sort of understanding not only am I going to be affected, but other people are going to be affected. So yep. yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. pretty brutal and, it's very scary. It's very scary. Yep. Right. Well, I mean, Kiefer gets that whole monologue about like what's going to happen to her as the sun comes up and the animals come out. And yeah, it's gross. Uh, we've established uh, that. So Ellen says she's she's filthy rich, so she doesn't need for Jake to pay her. So so that explains why she is driving the same vintage Porsche that Kelly McGillis has in Top Gun. Sure. Does not explain why Jake has a nicer car than he should be able to afford. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I want to slip in here since we're we're talking about this scene. The guy who actually comes and cuts her down, and I I, I guess he's defying his buddies by rescuing her. You know, not allowing yep. her to die. That is John Deal, who was a regular on Miami Vice. He was Detective Zito, uh, nice. who drove the bug van with Detective Switek. These were the two comic relief detectives. Like Crockett and Tubbs were the cool ones, right? And these guys were the two dorks who were in the like the fake. 
what do you call a, a bug uh, exterminator? The exterminator van. They, their cover was the exterminator van with the giant bug on top. Okay. That's that's him. This guy yes. shows up for two scenes and lots of movies for 20 years. Yep. And he is Mickey Mouse. He is the person yeah. that has been calling the houses and warning people. Uh, and he does take her down and uh, take her to the hospital. Next day, the defense called their psychiatrist, Dr. Willard Bass, the great M. Emmett Walsh, who gets pretty easily taken out of the knees by an old statutory rape conviction. Donald Sutherland then gives a chance to give Jake a speech about how you need to be better than me. There's a lot of Oscar-y, baby kind of speeches in this movie. Carl Lee then takes the stand. The DA gets him to admit that he thinks these two boys should have died and burn in hell. The score swells. The score swells a lot in this movie. I did not like the score at all. This was like real generic. This could be, I mean, I, I want to, to be able to identify the movie from the music usually, you know, and this yeah. just sounded like trailer music through the whole thing. Yep. Jake visits Ellen in the hospital. This is one of those moments when the movie could have chosen to go a little bit grayer, darker, deeper. And instead she kind of gives him an attaboy, a win one for the Gipper, Go get him, Tiger. Uh, when that didn't seem like it was the most nuanced or interesting thing she could have. I mean, I think you have to assume that she understood what she was getting into by the time this happened to her. Mm-hmm. She understood, you know, she knew about Jake's house, she knew about, you know, everything that had been happening. So I don't think she blames Jake. And I will tell you, I love this scene. And if you know anything about what I like about stories, what I love about this scene is that there is this moment she's, you know, she's been beaten up. He's come to her bedside. He's explaining to her that he feels terrible. He's apologizing. She's telling him you're doing what you have to do. You have to go out and finish the case. And there's this moment where she says, and this is such a Sandra Bullock selling this line kind of thing. When I lose your work. Make one hell of a team. We might have. We really might have. But she says, you really want to kiss me right now, don't you? Mm -hmm. And he says, yes, I do. You really want to kiss me right now, don't you? (laughs) Yes, I do. But he doesn't. And I think the fact that you have these two adults who acknowledge that they have this attraction to each other, that they admire each other, that they like each other, but they're not going to act on it because he's married. Mm-hmm. You know, he says something like, we make a great team, and she says, we really might have. And you get the feeling that they are having mm-hmm. a very adult conversation about the fact that they have a pretty powerful attraction, but it's one of those sort of in-another-life kind of moments. Yep. Yeah. And I like how they do it. I think it's really honest, and it's something that I almost never see. In, in a movie like this, people who, in that kind of like, it's not one person saying no to the other person. It's mm-hmm. the two of them understanding, maybe in some other situation, but not in this yeah. situation. I admire that a lot, and I love that scene for that reason. She does say, you want to kiss me right now? He says, I do. And then he kisses her on the forehead, which is Yeah, I mean, that doesn't nice. count. I like that, too. I will always respond to that also, Linda. The brief encounter thing. I mean, what what are movies even for, right? Like, in another life. Isn't that a major, major thing that we're 
choosing our our movies for in in a way like i i will i will never not respond to that I think and that's look nobody one. cares about the movie forces of nature except me <laughs> uh but that features uh, also sandra bullock and ben affleck as people who wind up on a road trip together he's trying to get home to get to his wedding to maura tierney and they also kind of wind up on the road they have an attraction they have to sort of re- resolve that in light of the fact that he also loves his fiance, Maura Tierney. And I also like how it plays out in that movie. So as I said, no one cares about that movie except me, but I like What that year? Movie. Let's uh, geolocate forces of nature. Oh, yeah. it's, hang on, give me a minute. 1999. Okay, so that's a little bit So this after. is like the, the, this is like the same year, I think. But figuring out that how Sandra Bullock gets $6 million for, no, wait, for five weeks. No, it's three years later. Excuse me. I know that this is two years after Speed, you know, and she was in Demolition Man before that in a pretty, which I, I don't think that movie was, it was certainly not a, the kind of hit that Speed was. But in between Speed and this in 96, that's where your beloved while you were sleeping exactly. comes in, that's right? Exactly. That's 95. And, and okay. I mean, it's really weird, but like, I am a big fan of mid '90s Sandra Bullock. I think she was doing a bunch of really cool and interesting stuff at that time. I will always love rom-com Sandra Bullock. Look, I highly recommend The Lost City, which recently showed up on yes. uh, for rent. You can on, you can uh, get that on your with Paramount Channing Plus Tatum. now, I think, if you have that. Man alive, I liked that movie. That is her at her uh, mid '90s best. So, uh, but before we continue, Linda, I, I must ask you. Have you been to the Washington, D.C. Alamo Draft House to pay your respects to the Bill Pullman statue in the library? I have not. I will. I will. You must. You must. I will. Okay. I brought my, so my friend, uh, uh, Heather Goss, who got me my job at Air and Space. So she was obviously the person I needed to go see Top Gun Maverick with again. And she was talking about Independence Day. And I was like, I am not going to tell you that there is a statue of Bill Pullman. And his speech from Independence Day is chiseled into the wall behind him in the lobby. <laughs> it was like, I'm, I'm, but it was so hard for me when she got onto that. I was like, I'm just going to let her discover this for herself. That's cool. And it was, it was worth it. It was worth it to see her reaction when she got into the lobby and saw President Pullman there. President Pullman. Okay, back in the movie, the jury visits, the jury votes at the motel. Uh, It's a unanimous guilty. Uh, Carla comes back, um, and here is, again, not a nuanced. This is, she's all forgiveness, all attaboy, all you were right, I was wrong. Boy, I didn't like this scene at all. Um, How'd you guys feel? Well, this is the scene that leads into his closing argument, really, Mm -hmm. Um, because what she says to him is essentially, I realize that if it was our daughter, um, if it was Hannah, I would have felt the same way. I would have wanted to kill those guys myself. So I I think it serves a purpose in the movie. Is it nuanced? No. Is Ashley Judd much better than this? Yes. Is she Mm -hmm. capable of much more interesting work than this? Absolutely. Is this a little bit of a throwaway wife part? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jake goes to Carl Lee and tells him that he doesn't see a way out and wants him to cop a plea. Carl Lee tells him that he chose Jake because Jake is on the side of the white people. They're not friends. You are part of the jury. You are the judge. You are the cops. See, Jake. You think just like them. That's why I picked you. You one of them, don't you see? Oh, you think you ain't because you eating clothes and, and, and you out there trying to get me off on TV talking about black and white. But fact is, 
you just like all the rest of them. When you look at me, you don't see a man. You see a black man. Carly, I am your friend. We ain't no friends, Jake. We on different sides of the line. I ain't never seen you in my part of town. I bet you don't even know where I live. And this was, man, this came out of nowhere for me and it had, it kind of undercut so much of what I was finding really boring and, and unimaginative and boilerplate about this film. I, I should have expected it because again, Sam Jackson is, is indicating that's a bad word for actors. He is, he is suggesting depths that uh, come out in this scene. Really nice variation on the white savior trope, a really thing that kind of, that adds layers where this film seems to Well, this, this also make, gives us Carl Lee as kind of a, a shrewd, calculating guy himself, which we haven't seen up till yep. now, right? I mean, he's just the grieving father, understandably, right. you know, because it's a horrible thing that his, his family experienced, his daughter experienced. America is a war. And you on the other side. How a black man ever gonna get a fair trial with the enemy on the bench in the jury box? My life in white hands. You, Jake, that's how. You my secret weapon. Cause you one of the bad guys. You don't mean to be, but you are. It's how you was raised. I guess it does improve the movie, but I... I was a little thrown by it. Like in the same way that I, I didn't completely understand why they proudly throw the NAACP out of, out of there when they come to him earlier and want to represent him. I wasn't sure if I was on board with this. Yeah. I, as I said, I do not care for the, the um, scene involving the, the NAACP I think is a, a regrettable one, but I think the purpose of this is to explain to Jake he did not pick you because he thinks you're better than this jury or the judge or the prosecutor. He picked you because he thinks you're just like those people. And you can figure out a way that they will let me go because you think exactly the way they think. You can figure out how to appeal to the all-white jury. And I think that's actually quite smart yep um that works for me and i was very glad about that for the character of carly certainly Mm -hmm. but i mean Mm -hmm. the way it's written is corny yeah the way like the way it's written is too broad and very corny and very direct and you know if there was a way for jake to come to this realization without carly explaining it to him Mm -hmm. it would be a better written scene Mm-hmm. But I, I like that revelation for the most part. Is this pretty closely following the novel at this point? I don't know. I don't know. That I don't remember either. Okay. The next day the state makes its summation. Well, I'm just a simple country lawyer. And then Jake gets up, makes his summation. Uh, he, he urges the jury to seek justice, not with your minds, but with your hearts, which I don't I, 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 knew, I knew you would object to um, He then tells, Linda, he tells the very graphic story of Tanya's rape, which was deemed not permissible in the trial. Can you introduce things that were not permissible in the trial, in your summation? I thought you were forbidden from doing that. I do not think so, no. Yeah. I, if, if, it, if it did not come in, you know, your summation really has to talk about the evidence, how the evidence... Um, 
leads to the legal conclusion that you want. But no, you can't. No, you can't uh, just start bringing in extra stuff, especially if it was explicitly excluded from from the trial. No. Yeah. Oh, okay, but what if you ask the jury to close their eyes first? <laughs> Listen. Can you? Then I mean, do it? who am I to say? Who am I to yep. say? I want to tell you a story. I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes. I tell you this story. Um, so then he, he describes this uh, really graphically and terribly. And then he says, now imagine if she's white, uh, the, the score swells and we get reaction shots from every single character in that courtroom to do that thing like they do at the beginning of Smash when, uh, where the, the person who's, who's the person from American Idol? Who's uh, Catherine McPhee. Catherine McPhee comes in and she starts singing and everybody, all the judges go, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, she's good. Because we have to be tipped off that she's actually Because obviously because she's not as good as Megan Hilty, so she you... can't be compared to Megan Hilty in any exactly. reasonable universe. I did find myself thinking about reaction shots and, and wondering how these are directed. Mm-hmm. You know, you just say to the, okay, we're going to do a few seconds and then this is when you're realizing that you're actually moved by this, uh, this oration or, and go, you know. Yep. So, so are you ready to make, for me to explain how this is different from the book? Yes, oh, yes, please. please. Okay. So in the book, what happens is the trial ends. Carly is found not guilty. There is a lot more back and forth about the jurors and what they are thinking and the pressure they feel from the protests outside the courthouse. Grisham goes into a lot more of sort of that the jurors feel um, intimidated by the fact that there's all this protesting. They're afraid of what will happen no matter what they do. So when they eventually, because at first it looks like they're going to be unable to reach a decision. So when they finally do, after they finally do, Jake is sort of like, I wonder what happened. So Jake goes to visit one of the jurors at home. She is off resting. But her husband, I think this is what happens, if I remember correctly, her husband explains to Jake that what she did was she asked all these people to envision this happening to a white girl and being done by black men. So it's sort of a, rather than Jake just saying, imagine that the little girl is white, she also says, You know, she goes through the entire scenario saying, imagine it is these two black men and it is this little white girl and they pick and she picks, they pick her up, they take her. So it's the same idea, Uh but it comes not from Jake. So Hmm. to the degree that there's a victory, it's not entirely created by Jake. It's created by somebody else. Jake is not Uh the hundred percent hero of the story. Because he didn't come up with that idea. Uh A woman who realized that, in other words, the idea that Jake, and this sort of grows out of the conversation with Carl Lee when he talks in the movie, the conversation with Carl Lee where Carl Lee talks about you think the same way these people think. And Uh then the conversation with Jake's wife where she kind of says, I realized that I agreed with you when I realized how I would feel if it was my daughter. Those are the things that lead Jake to understand, ah, yes, I think like these people. My wife thinks like these people. So what I have to do is get them to see their daughter in this situation, which they cannot do as long as they are envisioning this black 
child, which is obviously horrifying. Mm -hmm. But that is what he realized. He realizes he has to. It's not so much appeal to the racism of the jury, but it is acknowledge and work sort of around the racism of the jury more explicitly. Right. Mm -hmm. But in the book, this woman who is on the jury understands that she has to, it's the same thing, but she realizes that she has to motivate her fellow jurors to have some ability to relate to Carl Lee, not only by saying, what if it was your daughter who is white, but by getting them to admit that if the men were black, Mm -hmm. this is how they would feel. And so it's quite different in the book, partly just in the sense that Jake is not the sole hero. And this is a very, this is the kind of thing that happens when people adapt books into movies. You know what I mean? They make them flatter, they make them less complicated, and they tend to build up the hero element for the the lawyer. um, Because this is, right, because this is a mainstream Hollywood movie, and Mm -hmm. you don't want to leave your audience with any unresolved feelings. So you can feel Schumacher stepping off the gas, putting on the brakes. Right. The way the the actual verdict is handled is kind of fun. It's everybody outside the courtroom being very silent and expectant, and then the kid... That's it's a nice touch. I had that that moment there where I, I was like, wait, is the, are they deliberately taking out the sound for effect here? Or is everyone actually just standing silent on that? Like, I that seemed weird to me. It, it reminded me of that uh, scene in, in uh, The Last Jedi where the sound yeah. cuts out they and, and some theaters, because they were idiots, you know, theaters had yeah. to be like, this is an intentional, you know, it's an artistic mm-hmm. effect. It's not a problem with our sound system. I don't know. The, the, the people outside suddenly being silent, I, I didn't like that. Yep, but immediately after that, we get an exchange that felt gratuitous to me, where uh, Carly goes up to Jake and says, "Jake, that that summation was that was just." Yeah, I hated that. And then uh, Jake says, "Yeah, but I'm one of the bad ones, right?" Wow. Yes, uh, bad. That terrible. is bad. Terrible. And then and then uh, Carly has. They write that Carly actually looks chastened by that exchange, which is just terrible. Carly and Tanya embrace. Then Jake and Carla and Anna, uh, Hannah go over and they play together. I was really hoping for, like, you take that scene out. Or even, no, just don't take that scene out, that final scene out. What you do is you cut the last shot of Sam Jackson before he smiles. Like, before he says, oh, yeah, you're right, they can play together. And the film is 23% better. You, you leave... Yeah, a, a, a hint of ambiguity. You just don't make it. Or so what, what if Jake and Jake his family is... just roll up in their car and they kind of stand there, like waiting to be waved over? You know, yeah. like let's cut there. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because the truth is, the great wound on the American psyche cannot be cured by peach cobbler and playdates. And of course, I I want the film to. to... <laughs> to live in that truth as opposed to the truth it seems to want to live in. The end of it's um, very corny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to talk a little bit on this about my jury experience, which was very eye-opening and strange. And I, I have subsequently been dismissed from other potential juries by when asked, admitting like, yes, I was part of a jury that we we voted to convict the guy and I regretted it. I thought it was wrong. And, and it came down to, I, like, I remember the judge telling us uh, again and again, like, your job is to assess guilt or innocence. Don't worry about the potential penalty. Don't, you know, that's my job. I'm going to sentence just, you know, did he do it or not? This was in, in 2003 when I lived in California, and it was a gun case. And it was a, a kid, uh, I think, not a kid, but he was 18 or 19, and he pointed a, a gun at someone and threatened him. Didn't shoot, but he did threaten him, and he 
absolutely did it. Like, and that's why I'm thinking about in this movie, because like there was no question of whether or not Carl shot these guys, right? He absolutely did. But there were so many mitigating factors, including the fact that it was his father's gun that he pointed at these kids. His father was about to get into a fight with the person that this kid pointed his father's gun at. And his father was a parole officer. His father was 30 years into a law enforcement career. And it, it just emerged in, in his father's testimony about what happened that he hated his son. Like his, his father had, had testified in many other trials and like knew what he needed to say if he wanted us to find his son not guilty. And just like basically seemed to be saying like, ah, you know, he's a little wimp and he needs an experience like this to, to toughen him up. And his father absolutely would not admit that like the, you know, the, uh, the kid's public defender. Which, first of all, like his dad could get him a better lawyer and not have him be defended by a public defender, I think, if he wanted to, you know. Like all his father would have had to say is like, yes, I could see not even that I felt threatened in that moment. And that's why I understand why my son pointed my gun, which was in the glove compartment of the car at this other guy who I was arguing with. Not even that, like, I felt threatened. You could say, like, I could see how my son in that moment might believe that I felt threatened or I was, you know, I was in danger. And I was one of four jurors who initially voted to acquit. And we were persuaded to change our votes and, and convict the kid. And I remember, like, some clerk or something, like, kept coming into the jury room, like, every 20 minutes. Like, how about now? How about now? You guys got a decision yet? You guys, got, like, I mean, they were really pressuring us to, to move it along. And we, we only deliberated one afternoon. It's not like we were there, you know, overnight or anything. And then it turned out when, um, like, we, at, like after, after we brought our verdict in and, the, you know, the judge dismissed everybody and the judge then said, which I thought was weird, like, at that point, you know, we were allowed to talk to the lawyers if we wanted to. We could ask, you know, approach them in the hallway or whatever. The whole thing was weird. And I asked the, the, uh, the prosecutor, I remember, like, one of the, the other women who, who uh, like, was wanted to acquit along with me was a nun. And we asked, what, what do you think the sentence will be? And he said, oh, it's a, this, this has a mandatory minimum because it's a gun case. So this kid was definitely going to jail for this thing that, that I really thought was his dad's fault. And again, even though the judge had told us, guilt or innocence, that's your job. Don't think about the potential penalty. If I'd known that we were sending this kid to jail, there's no way I would have voted to convict him because I really think this whole thing was his dad's fault. You know, his dad was a, just a total prick. His dad basically went and started a fight with somebody and then looked like he was going to get hurt. And his son, fearing for his father's safety, pulled his dad's gun and that was it. He shouldn't have done that. But I also think his father should not have been trying to start a fight. His father, a parole officer, you know, sure. someone who is in, in law enforcement. It, the whole thing was, was a nightmare. And uh, yeah, so we convicted him and I felt horribly guilty about it. Like, and have you served on juries since? Yes, in a, in a drug case in D.C. after that. But, uh, but I have also been, been dismissed off one when, uh, during selection when, it, like, in response to one of the questions, I had to say, like, yes, I have served on a jury before. And it, and it was some weird thing, like, hey, do you have any feelings about it? And I was like, yeah, I think we, we brought in the wrong verdict. Uh -huh. Okay, thank you very much. Free to go. You know. uh -huh. Jury service is hard, man. Yeah. I, I, I think jury service is really hard. And, um, you know, as I said, I think the book more than the movie um, explores a little bit more the fine points of jury service in a community like this. Because I think, you know, I think, again, this is Grisham talking about systemic and community challenges, which includes what happens in a jury room. Right. Uh -huh. So. All right. Final verdict, <laughs> as it were. On a scale of zero to six, Linda, we'll start with you. 
What do you uh, think of A Time to Kill, the movie? Boy, it's really hard not to grade this on a curve of how limited I think movies about race from the perspective of white people uh-huh. um, were and are. I guess I would say I would give it a 3.5. Um, okay. So I think there's plenty here that is um, interesting. I think there are a couple of really nice performances. I think the Matthew McConaughey performance is uh, understandably was star making. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, I am always into to Sandra Bullock mid '90s uh, edition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's definitely limited in its scope and not as nuanced as the book. So, okay, Chris, where do you where do you land? Uh, you know, I think I think three point five is is right. I think that that sound. I I mean, I enjoyed watching this. A total cliche here, but this is the kind of movie they don't make anymore, right? I mean, Warner Brothers doesn't make movies like this anymore and certainly not bring it out in the middle of the summer. Would this actually have been better, maybe more nuanced as a streaming series? I mean, it's the other thing usually, right? We're like, why is this six parts? This could be a two-hour movie. This, But maybe some of that flattening and deadening would not have happened if there was more time for us to just sit with the jury for a while. Right. I think 3.5 is, is fair. Okay. Uh, sitting with the jury, I think, would have been a lot more interesting for me than getting kind of Republic serial villains as the Ku Klux Klan as your as your bad guys who were just mm, there was no nuance there. Which, of course, in real life there isn't, but it's still here. It just felt a little overdrawn, a little overdetermined. I went into this thinking too for me because it's just not my my jam. I don't. I, I'm not a Grisham guy, but Linda, you made some very good points, and the film did as I say, engage with the Atticus Finch of it all in an interesting way toward the end. Did back off at the end, but then it did at least introduce elements that I didn't expect it to introduce, so I'm going to go solid three. Yeah, and we've barely right. talked about Patty McGee because... Because he wasn't doing much. He doesn't much. do a lot. He doesn't do no. a lot. He has, he's your basic courtroom judge, just like, uh, who is it? Is it Herman Munster in? Yep. Uh, oh, in, uh, Fred in my cousin Fred Vinny. Yeah, you know Fred. Is it Fred Willard? It's the basic no, not Fred Willard. Fred, Fred Gwynn. Fred Gwynn. Judge, with the exception of the scene at his house when Jake comes to see him, and uh-huh. it becomes clear that the fix is in. He's already uh-huh. decided not only that he's going to turn down a change of venue motion, but also that he has essentially secured an agreement from the higher court not to uh, indulge an appeal, which is not supposed to happen. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, aside from that little scene of corruption, it's uh, he doesn't have a lot to do. I think he's perfectly fine. It is very common to get actors in roles like this who are wildly overqualified. That's a very common thing in courtroom films, but uh, he does perfectly fine. Yeah. And I mean, I think he probably left it all on the floor in The Phantom. Right. This is this is only <laughs> all three minutes of screen time. This is only a month later. And I think that, yeah, the, remind just, just me, giving remind me what the Phantom is. It is based on the uh, comic strip about the guy right. who dresses in purple. Who's He's in the ghost it? who walks. Billy Zane uh, is the Phantom. Billy Zane, Zane is the Phantom. Fa- I was going to say Alec Baldwin. No, that's the shadow. That's the shadow. Yes, because this is a weird moment. I, I had not put it together like this, but Blank Check has been doing Sam Raimi. And and they were talking about Darkman, and there was this, basically this decade in between 
Burton Batman and the sequels to that, right, and then right. like the Raimi Spider Man, where they weren't like we want to do something comic book ish, but what about these sort of like '30s radio yeah. where we don't have to pay any money? <laughs> yeah, like we're not going to go like full B-team. Marvel DC. Like, yeah. yeah, so so that's why you you get the shadow and the phantom and the saint, and none of them really work. They're okay, but they do decent but not great business. Right. They're right. kind of decent but right. not great quality wise. Well, if you ever just want to do like fun movies of the '90s, uh, call me up and we'll do Malice. But it has nothing to do with Patty McGee or. Uh, Oh, or the prisoner, is that, but maybe but we can about figure something out. That's maybe. Baldwin saying, I, I am God. Who do you think they're praying to? That's, I that's love that, that movie. right? I weirdly love that movie. Speaking of the Bill Pullman statue. Linda, I don't think I've seen it, but I remember the trailer so clearly. I weirdly love that movie. It's twisty. Uh, it's weird. It's kind of dumb. Uh, is it it's not? It's like Aaron Sorkin before he had principles which was the best version of him oh um, oh see this this kind of this kind of makes sense now because i i was um i was thinking it must be you know um how am i blanking on the name of the most famous playwright ever glengarry glenn ross american buffalo david uh, oh, david mamet david mamet yes thank you i mean he was writing a ton of screenplays in this era mm-hmm. this was sorkin though this was like early yeah. sorkin i think he's like disclaimed it i think he's been like I don't stand by that mm. movie, but I, I like it, man. I like it. It's real weird. But I stand by the newsroom because, anyway, um, Linda, thank you so much. You were the perfect person for this movie. I couldn't. I can't imagine anybody else caring. <laughs> of course, no. no actually, I... bringing bringing what you brought to it, which is an understanding of Sandra Bullock, plus an understanding of law, plus an understanding of John Grisham. I mean, like this is exactly. This, this is, you are the ideal guest. It makes me very happy to, to be here with you guys because you guys are the greatest. Oh, heck. That's awfully sweet to say. Oh, we, we, um, we certainly need to acknowledge Octavia Spencer's incredible contribution to this film. I believe she is the nurse in the hospital at the end when Sandra Bullock is injured and she says a line that's like, oh... <laughs> <laughs> or you something like so that happy. when yes. yeah again because uh, everyone in this movie is is somebody as yeah. as that we've said that is true it's true you know what else is like that this is definitely a tangent but i just yesterday and this is in this is in preparation for an upcoming pop culture happy hour assignment but i watched dick with mm-hmm. michelle williams and kirsten mm-hmm. dunst mm-hmm. now that is a movie where everybody is somebody <laughs> Yeah. And at the very end, or close to the end, when they are trying to sneak into one of the bad guy's houses, I don't remember who it is, uh, the himbo son who is cleaning his car and uh, taking advantage of a beer bong inside the house is a very young Ryan Reynolds. And, oh, uh, oh, wow. It's, a, it's, a, it's quite a pleasure because he's uh, very young and inexperienced. And uh, it's very funny. He's very funny. That's funny. Which is more than you can say for Red Notice. I know we're, we're trying to wrap up here. I want to say quickly, I, apparently Schumacher wanted uh, Woody Harrelson to be yeah. Jake. And yeah. uh, Grisham, Grisham vetoed yeah. that. It's interesting to me that McConaughey, I, I think his next movie is, is Amistad, where he also plays, uh, he's a, the law, like white lawyer representing the enslaved people who rebelled. I mean, I haven't seen that movie since it came out in 97. But, and then after that, he does not stay in this lane at all, right? No, he had a, he had a long string of forgettable rom-coms, um, <sighs> which, look, he's great at. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> he's great at forgettable rom-coms. He's funny. 
He's so good looking. He's so charming. He has charisma out the wazoo. And then you kind of lose track of him until True Detective and mm-hmm. and that sort of um, that phase of his career. Until Interstellar. I know we, we all love Interstellar. Right? But if we don't, you we don't want, to... I'm ignoring you, but if you want to see kind of what <laughs> it looks like when Hollywood fastens upon a young, white, conventionally attractive dude and shoots and presents him in a way designed to make him a star... Watch Matthew McConaughey in this movie because from yeah. the beginning when he is getting in that car with Oliver Platt, who P.S. terrific in this movie, mm-hmm. um, he has that like glow and it's yeah. not just the sweat. Although I would say the sweatiest <laughs> person in this movie is uh, Ashley Judd. Definitely. Every yeah. time you see her, she is drenched. She has been <laughs> slicked. Like nobody else is slicked, even though yep. everybody is a little bit yep. slicked. It's, she it's... is slicked like it, on the décolletage. Yeah, totally. She it is, is Cool Hand Luke and then this movie. That's <laughs> yeah. it's true. Somebody asked me once what I thought the sweatiest movie was, and I said, A Time to Kill. And they were like, what? And I said, <laughs> if you say what, it's been a while since you watched A Time to Kill. I love a sweaty movie. Mm. Addressing uh, Patty McGee one more time before we go here. Is this the only time that Joel Schumacher has ever perhaps said, take it down? <laughs> Very possible. This is, uh, this is the only time I've ever wanted Schumacher, Schumacher to be more Schumacher-y. Now remind me, which is the other one Joel Schumacher did? The other the Client. The Client. Which, oh, the uh, client. Yeah, so we have the, the Client in 94, Batman Forever in 95, this in 96, and then Batman and Robin in 97. I think the client is the first one where I felt like Grisham was a little bit feeling that pressure to kind of churn him out and you get a little mm-hmm. bit of auto, you know, the, mm-hmm. the first one, there's a, it's a little bit rote, but I think he got kind of got back on a, a good. Um... You pointed out a, a very clear, well-reasoned objection to the, the way the firm, the movie ends. And I, I mean, I remember enjoying the movie very much, going to see it with my friends when it came out. And, and I think I, I caught up with the Pelican Brief later. The Blu-ray that I bought this on was a, a three for 10 bucks set of the Warner's Grisham trilogy with the Pelican Brief and the client. The client is the sure. one that I haven't seen. Sure. The client is okay. The, the client is okay. I'm not sure it adds much to uh, what Grisham has done in other things up to that point. The uh, Runaway Jury, which has uh, John Cusack in it, um, has some nice moments because uh, Cusack, the guy Cusack is playing is more morally gray. Um, He's the protagonist, but he is also an opportunist and a scam artist, sort of. Cool. And the Rainmaker, which Matt Damon is in, is also part of the building of the Matt Damon um, huh. And that's you know, that's Francis Ford Coppola, right? That's like I think hmm? that's like work for hire Coppola, but that's a Coppola movie. Uh, very well, might be. Yeah, it's um, the the Rainmaker is the kind of um, very similar story to something like Aaron Brockovich. It's the hmm. it's it's Grisham's big, um, at least at, at the bigger one that I know of, uh, sort yeah. of environmental. You know, damage similar to Aaron Brockovich or a civil action. If you've ever read that book or seen yeah. that John Travolta movie, I did. I did see that movie. <laughs> um, similar to kind of those crusading um, environmental law uh, movies. So there are some, there's some nice, some nice adaptations out there. Well, I think we should we should ask uh, uh, Linda if she has anything she she'd like to plug. You know, any um, literary 
endeavors or anything? Absolutely. You bet. Um, My book, my new book is called Flying Solo. It's out on June 14th. Um, It is uh, about a woman who is uh, about to turn 40. She has just canceled her wedding. um, And she goes back to uh, her hometown in Maine after the death of her aunt to clean out her aunt's house. She finds a mysterious and beautiful duck decoy and decides to try to figure it out uh, why it is there and why her aunt has it. And in the process of doing that, she reconnects with her oldest friend and also her first love, who is a the town librarian. I love a sexy librarian love interest. And mm-hmm. if you did read Evie Drake, there are a few small updates because it takes place in the same time. Oh, good. There you go. Yeah. A few That's small good. updates. Not a lot of uh, crossover, but uh, yeah. <laughs> a few little itty-bitty <laughs> updates around the edges. But in the same way that Dr. Chilton from Silence of the Lambs is in A Time to Kill for, exactly. for 90 seconds. Listen, exactly. you just got to yeah. gotta give those little baby Easter eggs um, <laughs> just, to, just so people know what's going on. Just so six books from now, there's somebody can collect all the Infinity Stones, all the exactly. Evie Drake Infinity yes. Stones. Exactly. Well, enjoy it while it lasts, because this is, as far as I know, my last main book. So. Okay. All right. Wow. Yeah. You know what? I bet Stephen King said that at some point in like the 70s. <laughs> know, right? He was like, no more main. I'm done I with know, main. I know. Um, all right, Chris, what's next for us? I'm not sure I know. Think we you? need to? I think we need to to go to AMC. I think we need to go to 2009. McKellen, Caviezel, oh boy, and uh, oh boy. and get to the okay. the prisoner reboot that Let's no one do liked. It. But uh, you know, it. I haven't. I remember we we talked about it in '09. We were we were very early in our relationship, Glenn. But mm-hmm. uh, I recall neither of us really liked it much. But perhaps time will. <laughs> now that we we look back on uh, Jim Caviezel and so much more more kindly. I just want to say I really uh, well, appreciate you guys being the only podcast about the prisoner. We're not even the only one. We're not. We're not. Glenn knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Two uh two upstarts, Chris, uh named uh, Elliot Kalin and uh, John Hodgman are going to start doing a podcast about the prisoner. Um they're going to be totally biting our style and totally uh-huh. <laughs> like <laughs> our numbers are about to. Did you say Hodgman? Hodgman John is Hodgman, one of yes. them. Okay. Yes. Yep. We've, you've, you've introduced me to him. I'm familiar with his work. I'm familiar with his work. I've, Good I've, uh, yes. I think he replied to me on Twitter oh, once. Oh, Braveheart. I'm just looking at all this fun stuff that Patty McGee has been in. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, and less than fun stuff. Scanners. Escape mm-hmm. from Alcatraz. Those are the mm-hmm. two that we got uh, Alexander Petri for. I think man she was, uh, she's a good mask. choice. We haven't done, done the Man in the Iron Mask yet. And that's Very that's nice. Richard Chamberlain, I think. Yep. The original Jason Bourne. Pure icon, Richard Chamberlain. Oh, it's not the one with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. No. Nope. Predates. No, I think that that was Amazing. that was post Titanic. Leo. Oh boy, I see. He was in Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. Totally was. We just did that last week. I know. Oh boy. I'm totally oh boy, gonna oh listen to it. I am totally. Oh boy. Gonna to oh boy. <laughs> Jordan Morris is great on that because he is a dinosaur person. He is I to dinosaurs heard. as you are to uh, <laughs> legal shit and Grisham and uh, Sandra Bullock and rom coms. So. It's a beautiful thing. I am so delighted that I could be of use to you. Thank you so much, Linda. Chris. Glenn. Be Chris seeing you. you. Linda, would you like to throw a, a be seeing you out there? We're toying oh, with sure. this. <laughs> oh, yes, be seeing you. There we go. Oh, God.
Look at that. That is audio uh -huh. magic right there. Uh -huh. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it magical. Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our silly little theme song, which was then arranged and performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on vocals and keyboards with her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion and Marcus Newstead on bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Write the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at NotAnumberPod, on Instagram at a degree absolute. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you favor. Leave us a five-star review with your wildest prisoner take, and we will feature that prisoner take, if it is sufficiently crazy, on a future episode. As you are hearing this, our dear friend Linda's second novel, title, Flying Solo, is mere days away from publication, the long-awaited follow-up to her beloved 2019, Evie, not Evie, Drake Starts Over, both available wherever you get your books. Finally, a small correction. When I looked at A Time to Kill Again while editing this episode, I see that the John Mellencamp t-shirt that Jake Brigand's Matthew McConaughey's character was wearing was from the 1992 Whenever We Wanted tour, not the Lonesome Jubilee tour. These are both fine John Mellencamp albums, as you know. I do prefer the Lonesome Jubilee, but uh, that's nothing against Whenever We Wanted. Okay. Gotta wrap it up now. Um, this episode has gone on so long that uh, it has further imperiled Glenn's marriage. Yeah, I have to get back to my husband. So get your fireworks out, baby boys and girls. Shoot them into the sky, because we just took another trip around the sun on our calendar year. I made my resolution just as time for retributions. This is going to be the one where we do it, isn't it? Ah, let's talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. You are a bitch. You're always a friend of mine when I finally come over to your way. But, you know, right now, just, just walk away, will you? Let it go. I dare you, okay? If I could, I would, because I'm not sleeping. Just fucking walk away, will you? Know what I'm talking about? 
So, what to believe in? What to believe in? I don't know. <laughs> okay. One man came. We must each come. So slippery, but still screwed in. A kite tied to an anchor. Another plea with promise. Patient with haste, because there ain't no going back again. Another love song for when the lights go out. Reminding all of us to hang on, because we got a lot to hold on to. Yes, we do. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Damn it, if it doesn't always make me cry. It's not sad, it's more the optimism of it. Like birth, not death. Speaking of little guitar tickles, you ever get a, a piece of a song uh, stuck in your head so much that you dream to that beat? Burn out, bow, burn out, bow, boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. Locked in. How you gonna do it if you really don't wanna dance? By standing on the wall and get your backs up off the wall. Uh-huh. Yeah, a few minutes after cooling, the gang told us all to do just that. We got reminded as well to get our hearts off the ground, our spirits in flight day and night, and tell gravity to have a bit of a fuck off. Consequences, good and bad, way to lay it down, say, let it land where it lands. And where the two shall meet is the honey hole, as far as I can see. In the meantime and all times, as we all know, a roof is a man-made thing. Woo-hoo! Just keep living.